VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, September the 1st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing this command with an edition of the program. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86. 26. So, quick check in on the men's fast pitch softball national championships being taken place in Surrey, BC. The Galway Hitmen, defending champion, champions, 4 0 after a couple of days on the pitch. And Physio and Co., the other representative from the province, unfortunately 0 3. So, Galway looking to defend their national title. And we've been keeping an eye on the FIBA World Cup of Basketball. Canada 3 0 in the group stage, outscored their opponents by 111, averaged 108 points per game. Moving on to the knockout stage now. This is where it gets real. So they're playing Brazil a little bit later this morning. Brazil ranked ahead of them, but Canada really looked to be on a roll. So we'll see if they can get through the Brazilians and hopefully qualify automatically for the Paris Olympic Games. Yesterday we talked about the fact that Tracy Austin at the tender age of 16 was the youngest person to ever win a match at a major championship and or the U.S. Open. Went on to win in 1979. It was on this date in 1987. 15-year-old American tennis player Michael Chan became the youngest man to win a match at the U.S. Open. He beat an Aussie named McAmey in four sets in the opening round. Chang had a good career, went on to win a French Open championship, 34 titles to his credit, and a very quick one on the tennis note at the U.S. Open yesterday. American John Isner played his final match, got knocked out of the tournament. He's had a pretty stellar career. This is an amazing stat. He was the number one American for nine different years. That is more than any other American tennis player, whether it be Sampras or Agassi or McEnroe or Roddick or Jimmy Connors or whoever you want to throw into the conversation. Isner was the number one American for nine years. Now, Sampras, he was the number one for eight years, but that's pretty amazing stuff. Okay. So here we go into the long weekend, the last weekend before the back to school takes place uh, next uh, weekend, September the 6th. I heard uh, Jerry Lynn Mackey speak with uh, Corporal Garland with the RCMP, and there's just something about the long weekend which sometimes, unfortunately, brings upon some pretty devastating headlines Come the when we come out the other side, whether it be about the number of people who pulled over at check stops and drunk behind the wheel or intoxicated in some form behind the wheel, drownings and collisions and some unfortunate, terrible things. So whatever you got to do to make sure you have a safe and a fun weekend. But it's just remarkable how the long weekend can bring that along. And of course, Labor Day on Monday. We've had a couple of conversations this week about what Labor Day means and the uh, influence of organized labor. There's plenty of very strong opinions about labor out there. But even if you want to bring some of the events in your community to the show this morning, we can do that for you. And of course, back to school. So the NLTA, the Newfoundland Labrador Teachers Association, say that over the years there has been absolutely a problem with having all the teachers in place on day one. And the quicker that teachers can be put in place to know what grade they're teaching and what school they're teaching, what curriculum they'll be delivering, the better prepared they'll be to hit the ground running and consequently better would be for your son or daughter. So apparently they say based on the advice that they've given to the department and the district over the years, they seem and they say they're really pleased with the progress this year. So that's good news because there's nothing worse than, you know, your child comes home. Okay, who's your teacher? Well, it's Mr. Jones, but it won't be Mr. Jones all year. He's just uh, sitting in for the eventual permanent teacher, those types of things. And if you're someone who has a child with exceptionalities and needs some additional types of supports in the classroom, let's hope 
especially if you're staying in the same school you were in last year, that the administration, the district, the department understands your needs and hopefully that support will be in place for you as well. Also, we've had many conversations with Bev Moore Davis and others about the body safety program. Now, the minister responsible, Crystalline Howell, says no need to call it a pilot any longer because it is going to be in 18 schools. There are going to be 20 more in September uh, this year. It was in 18, 20 more this September, then an additional 20 for January 2024, and it'll continue on from there. When you look at the court docket every day, it is unbelievable. It is littered with sexual abuse crimes, charges. So, and they extend from uh, uh, charges against uh, men and women who have committed these atrocities against youth and also against adults. And then you see a story yesterday. And then we were talking about what red flags look like and what you should not understand as a child and where to turn when one, one thing or another untoward happens or your propo- some proposal comes your way. So this disbarred, disgraced la- lawyer, Michael Drover, child porn charges. Then I see someone sent me a screen grab of another laundry list of sexual charges against this fellow. I think he's going to be appearing out in Harbor Grace. So whatever we have to do, because the conversations are tricky, right? You know the deal. If you're a parent, you know, some parents are really quite open and have that type of relationship with their child where there's nothing that's left off the table. Very frank and honest and open conversations about sex, about red flags, about things that you need to be under, that you need to understand, what to look out for, where to turn when you need help. And then about smoking and drinking and drugs and all the rest. And the conversations we should be having with our kids, but sometimes it's easier said than done. And so for things that people say, well, what's appropriate in the school? And at what age should we be having these conversations? This body safety program is test driven for age appropriateness and whether or not people understand it or believe it or want to include it many of these things including conversations about sex is biology now yes it's absolutely imperative to understand how it's being delivered at to what age it's being delivered and if you want to tackle that because that's been a very contentious issue but i guess contentious issues are what we have to deal with so let's do it if you're into it all right, let's see. Conversation yesterday with the Minister of Industry, Energy, and Technology, Andrew Parsons, about the decision made by the government for four companies to move forward with their wind to hydrogen to ammonia. And, of course, they are ABO, who is partnered out with Brea Renewable Fuels to operate on the Combi Chant property. 108 hectares of crown land would be required. Everwind on the Buren Peninsula, 270,000 hectares of crown land reserved. Exploits Valley Renewable Energy Corporation and their 30,000 uh, 30, hectare proposal. And, of course, World Energy GH2. So there was lots of information, but still lots of gaps, right? People are asking about the timelines associated with public feedback. You only had 50 days to try to digest some 4,000 pages, some of it very, very technical. So that deadline is on October 11th. There was also questions about whether or not it would be appropriate for the federal government to get involved here and for the projects to be assessed at the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. You know, I guess the other side of that would be is that do we really want the feds involved in things that are completely and solely in our jurisdiction? But, as the minister said, and we're going to try to get some more information from the Department of Environment, because he did say that there are things that can trigger federal intervention. So we'll try to figure out exactly what they might be so that, you know, just for your information, doesn't matter if you're for or against, we're just trying to get the info out there. It's not a proponent or opposed to it, it's just the facts of the matter. Then some of the questions that flowed after our conversation with Minister Parsons were things like, well, why aren't we using wind power ourselves? And, you know, back in the pre-Muskrat Falls days, or when the final sanction was coming around, there was lots of conversation about other forms of energy, including wind. These proposals 
are not in place for domestic use. Now, the interconnectivity with what power they might be selling back into the grid or power they might be taking from our grid, still Jennifer Williams at Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. We are going to hope to have her on the show next week to talk about those facets. So... Yes, we can use wind. When we were an isolated grid, electrical engineers said we had the possibility to use some 10% of wind-generated energy, and that was it. Now that we're on an interconnected grid via the maritime link, the water and the beans has changed there. There are ongoing negotiations about the potential for offshore wind. That is a federal issue. So they're looking at regulatory regime things, uh, royalty regimes, all of those things that are currently in play, and hopefully we'll get some more information on that in the near future. And then it's whether or not we can use hydrogen from any of these facilities when they're up and running to do something about not using a diesel-fired turbine out to replace Hollywood, which is scheduled to close in 2030. And we'll see if that ever happens. So there's still some big questions about wind and hydrogen and ammonia. And then it goes on to the big one. And it was asked of me several times yesterday about the whole what's in it for us. Fair enough. Because this is private pri- private business that is going to be making money. I assume they're pro- the plan is to make money, even though the green hydrogen is pretty expensive for the end consumer, the energy loss conversation, what have you. The province did tell us what they forecasted to be economic impact, whether it be jobs at peak, about 11,694. It's a pretty precise number, but anyway. Then the financial impact in the lifespan of 35 to 40 years for those projects, estimated $206 billion in GDP, $11.7 billion dollars in revenue for the province okay someone says why don't we ever talk about the royalties and the revenue side because for the rest of us who are not going to be directly involved those would be the questions we have so it's fair to say that there's some problems with the very low water royalty but here's the breakdown one more time for folks who are interested in where the money is going to come from what the benefit would be for those of us not living in the areas where some or all of these plants or projects will be built crown land 3.5% 3.5% of the market value of reserve lands. They have, there's an 18-month crown land reserve, and yes, they have to put down 3.5% of the market value. Then there's an annual charge of 7% of the market value for leased lands. In the wind electricity tax, $4,000 per megawatt on installed capacity. There's an annual charge, and that's applicable to all projects that are greater than 5 megawatts. The water use fee, because yes, we can say there's no provincial money in play here, but we're all federal taxpayers as well, and there is a pretty pretty attractive 40% federal tax credit here. So we are in. We do indeed have a role to play here in these projects. And water and land, of course, and the environment is absolutely of value. It might not be cash, but it is precious and it's absolutely valuable commodities. Water use. There's a fee of $500 per 1,000 cubic meters of water that's licensed and used. There's a fee of $50 per 1,000 cubic meters of water licensed and not used. That's applicable to all the hydrogen facilities. Then some of the questions come about, why no escalators? There is an escalator in the water royalty, and it all comes with that caveat of cost recovery. So we don't get a water royalty until the proponents recover their capital costs in full. But there there is an escalator on that front. In Tier 1, it's 10% after the uh, cost recovery of 1%. It goes up to 20% when there's double cost recovery. Now, we're talking huge numbers. Like for world energy, we're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe $12-plus billion. So a lot to recover before the escalators kick in. In the final tier, tier 3, it's 25%, and that's applied after they recover three times their capital cost. So there's some of the what's in it for us answers, and that's whether or not that's good, bad, or indifferent. I'll leave that up to you, but there you go.
you want to take it on, you know what to do. All right, let's move to the federal front here for a moment. This conversation went the way. It was all the rage, and absolutely rightfully so. If you're a federal government employee who was getting underpaid, overpaid, or not paid at all because of the perpetually plagued Phoenix pay system. Since 2016, it hasn't worked. They're looking at it costing some $2.6 billion before there's a cheaper replacement ready. They brought in a company in 2021 called Ceridian to try to work on a replacement. Here's some of the questions. $2.6 billion for something that's been broken since day one. But part of the negotiation between the Treasury Board of Canada, the Public Sector Alliance of Canada, the Canadian Association of Professional Employees, they came up with a compensation structure for those who were impacted by Phoenix. Marriages were dissolved, houses were lost, lines of credit were maxed out, credit cards were maxed out, borrowing from family and friends. It has been a nightmare. So what was part of the negotiation of what they call compensation hours? Since 2016, no, pardon me, since 17, when they started this negotiation, there's been 4.3 million compensation hours to the affected employees. That equals 179,000 days of leave simply based on the compensation that I think is justifiably deserved by the public sector employees. But that's a huge number, massive number. Then there's other some federal government uh, issues regarding tracking absences. It's something that came to pass during the pandemic, and they've even given up on tracking it. And in the compensation hours, the groups or the departments that got the largest number of compensation hours, CRA, the Correctional Service of Canada, Public Services and Procurement Canada, and the Department of National Defense. So Phoenix doesn't get much discussion, but I would imagine if you're a federal government employee who's still being underpaid, overpaid, or not paid at all, it's a conversation we should be having. All right, another one on the federal front. Finally, after six months of no one being in the role of the ethics commissioner, the federal government has appointed an interim ethics watchdog, as they call it. The gentleman's name is Conrad Windrich von Finkenstein. He's going to be in the role for the next six months. Now, remember, when uh, Mr. Dion retired, a lady named Martine Richard, or Richard, was put in the position, and then we found out she was the sister-in-law of Intergovernmental Affairs Minister Dominic LeBlanc. So, of course, inappropriate. Six months is the longest time since 2007 when the role was created that we did not have anyone serving. You know, whether it be to take on ethics investigations, provide advice to members of parliament regarding conflict of interest. This is a real self-inflicted wound for the feds. One of the big knocks on the federal liberals, and there's many, but one has been the frequency of ethics breaches. So to have no one sitting in that role is completely and entirely inappropriate, and it will be yet another arrow in the quiver for those opposing the Liberal Party. I mean, it's in everyone's best interest, certainly as voters, maybe not so much as politicians, although they should feel this way, is that attention to ethics when you are navigating multi-billion dollar federal government purse, interactions with lobbyists, interactions with supporters and donors, for the love of you know who. How could it have gone six months without an ethics commissioner? But we do have an interim for six months until they move on. And I'm still interested in the conversation about what happens or what becomes of 24 Sussex Drive because, you know, if you hear from opposition members, ah, the prime minister doesn't need uh, anything beyond what they already have. It's not going to be just Justin Trudeau's possibility. 99 chances out of 100. Trudeau will never be in a new Sussex Drive. You know, it'll take about seven years, they say, to design and to construct and for it to be able to be moved into. But uh, if you're into that, we can do it. All right. Crab season over. 
About 97% of the total allowable catch got landed and processed, which is truly amazing with a six-week delay. That adds up to about $20 million in raw material, $40 million in market value. We know the plant workers have been working furiously to get this completed. About 10 million pounds of crab processed throughout the plants in the province over the course of this chaotic industry. It comes with a lot of different conversations, but if you want to tackle it, let's go. A couple of quick ones before we get to the break and to your call. On this date in 1980... Terry Fox and the Marathon of Hope came to an end just outside of Thunder Bay in Ontario, of course, due to Fox's illness, but the Marathon of Hope over on this date. And for those of you who are regular listeners, all of you, you know, sad loss that I was told about yesterday, a, a caller who made time for the show many times over the years, and from where I sit, not often enough. And with the fact that it's Merchant Navy Veterans Day coming up on the 3rd of September, very likely something that we would have heard from Bob Thorne on. Bob was a lovely man, military historian, did a lot of work with military families, brought a fascinating perspective to the program when he had the opportunity to join us, and I'm told that yesterday, Bob passed away. So for all of his friends and his family, for the listeners who really appreciated Bob Thorne, and for this host who really appreciated Bob Thorne, our deepest condolences to his friends and to his family. We'll miss his contributions here on the program. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, we're going to have a great show. I can feel it in my water. Adam Furlong's there. It kicks off with Crown Lands. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Just before we get to Adam on line number two, and we mentioned the passing of Bob Thorne, and coming up on the 3rd of September is Merchant Navy Veterans Day. Just in an email exchange during the break, there's a conversation, actually two or three calls we've had about a man named Jess La Rochelle. He was awarded the military, the Star of Military Valor in Afghanistan for some absolute heroics. There was actually a petition in front of Parliament and brought forward, of course, also by General Hillier about trying to upgrade that to a Victoria Cross. Apparently, Mr. La Rochelle passed away last night. It's a tale of a real Canadian hero. To hear the exploits of Jess Rochelle in action was astounding. So apparently, Mr. La Rochelle has also passed. Sad. Uh, let's go line number two. Good morning, Adam. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Welcome back. Yeah, uh, I wish I could say I'm happy to be back, but it's not really. Okay. Um, I've been listening to all the conversations. Diamond Lane, Playman Forsey, Greg French and Greg Party talking about the long-standing Crown Lands issues. Which Adam, the connection is not great. Let's see if you can shuffle around a little bit, see if we can clear this up so we can hear you. Uh, how's that? For, for now, it's better. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, so I've just been listening to, com- to the conversations earlier this week where we're all just continuing to talk about an issue that the, the Liberals have never even chimed in on. You know, they, they have made it very clear to me that they've got no interest in trying to address or fix this problem. Um, a lot of the conversation always comes back to the Lands Act, which was the whole cause of the of the problem to begin with. But the matter regarding this issue, what's causing these issues for the people in this province, is not even legislation. Like, I've, I've heard the word legislation thrown around a lot, and it's not even legislation. It, it is simply a policy. So they don't even – it's not like their hands are tied, you know. They don't have to be doing this. It's a policy that has been not enforced for decades because, you know, it doesn't make any sense. So, you know, the, the policy has been around since 1977, and it's only – you know, the last five years probably where people have been encountering this problem. So someone is making a conscious decision to 
enforce this policy and, and take the residents of this province to court and fight them over their land ownership. And I believe that what you said on Wednesday during your conversation with uh, Craig Party hit the nail on the head. They don't want to concede to the Diamonds in Catalina, the Fishers in Bonavista, the Abbots or the Furlongs here in Bloomfield or anyone else who's experiencing this issue because they're afraid that if they do, they're going to have thousands or, or likely tens of thousands of people in this province looking for the same outcome. But that's not a bad thing. That is exactly what needs to happen. I mean, right now and for decades, who owns what land in this province has just been completely up in the air and nobody knows and nobody can agree on it, at least of all the Crown Lands Division. I mean, they're not going to sell or grant or lease or otherwise use any of these pieces of land in the middle of of a community with a house on it that has a family living in it. So they're just kicking the can down the road and costing people huge amounts of stress and and money for no real reason whatsoever. I mean, they, they can't agree. One of the things that, that I've heard talked about is, is to have the people come forward and say, this is, this is the piece of land that I'm claiming that I own, and then just allow them to not have to go to court, but just pay for the land. I don't agree with that either. They can't agree to have all these families purchase their land from the Crown to get it settled, even if they use the prices of the day from when it was bought. You know, if they went back and said, well, the Diamonds can pay for the land that they own based on the price in 1980-whatever it was. 1983, yeah. 1983, and the Abbots can buy their land back for whatever the, the price was in 1971. That's not right either because they already did. They already paid for that land back in in the day that they bought it. I mean, they they purchased their land in a private sale, and now the government coming in suggesting that they now deserve to be paid for that same land. I mean, it's nothing short of robbery. It's the same thing, in my opinion, to me coming and sitting in the driver's seat of your car and saying, this is my car now, Patty Daly. If you want it back, you have to buy it from me. And I don't care if you have a bill of sale from... Chevrolet. Oh, I don't recognize that. If you want your car back, you got to pay me for it. I get it. So uh, I think I'm trying to recall exactly what I said. I know what I mean. I know what I think is if anybody in, we'll talk just uh, private individuals, their families and their residential home. If you can prove the way the diamonds have proved their ownership of the land, it should be just a no brainer. It should be a fundamental as, okay, there you go. If we were talking about proof of uh, not only ownership, but the land had been occupied or used for 20 years prior to 77, all of that nonsense. And they've done all of that. So that should be the end of the story. For business models like yours, I mean, if there's a need to push for more and more agriculture, more and more food to deal with insecurity and security, yours is no-brainer. It should be done. For issues like crown land for industrial or commercial applications, the government absolutely should be very strict and very attentive and due diligence associated with that. But that's completely different than your situation, completely different than the diamond situation. So I, I think that's fair to say that government just simply doesn't want to set a precedence that 
all of the value and all the revenue that could be achieved by sale of Crown Land under the Diamonds home or otherwise would represent, I don't know how many how much money, but it's something they just are seemingly unwilling to do. The key takeaway for me with Greg French, even through all of the proposed solutions and some of the technicalities, is if the driving force should be whether or not what the government is doing on a piece of Crown Land is in the public best interest. And for the life of me, I can't understand how the public's best interest is attained by how they're dealing with you, how they're dealing with the Diamonds, and how they're dealing with the other files that are on the on Greg French and other lawyers' desks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is no interest in, of the public's best interest here. I mean, what needs to happen there? If they're concerned about their their potential lost revenue from you know future sale of all this land, I mean, Greg French suggested this back when the PMR was tabled in the House of Assembly. What they need to do is set up a program where people in the province have a set period of time, just say the next five years, to come forward with their documentation and proof of land ownership, and they'll have to pay a nominal fee to get it all officially processed and finalized to be officially their land. And in my opinion, $500 would be more than fair for that nominal fee, even if they went $1,000. But I mean, it's none of these people's fault for any of this. The government are the ones who are responsible for decades of mismanagement of Crown land in this province. And I mean, I've heard Greg French estimate that there are tens of thousands of properties in the province with this this issue. That's multiple tens of thousands, but just for easy math, let's say there's 10,000 people in this province who come forward to try to get this land issue sorted out. If each one of them pays a $500 fee, that amounts to $5 million paid into the government coffers to finally get this issue straightened out. And honestly, $5 million for something that is their fault to begin with is far more than they deserve to get this fixed. Well, I mean, the nominal fee, if it, even if we just call it an administrative fee, fair, fair enough. But I like your suggestion. And when we talk about, I mean, government holds all the cards here, of course, even if it's just simply policy, not legislation. But when people add up, even the value of land, if government even had to offer the diamonds, well, here's a price tag that you need to pay for to complete your real estate transaction. That's probably a quarter of what it's cost for them to go to court. So we're really putting people in positions of financial distress, emotional distress, anxiety, and frustration and anger over the sake of, in this case, a couple or few thousand dollars worth of land. It's really remarkable. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, and I've been trying to to talk to the minister responsible or somebody with decision-making power in his office for three years. So it was when all this happened, it was Elvis Loveless, and then it was Derek Bragg for a period of time, and now it's Elvis Loveless again. And I have been, for the most part, completely ignored. I mean, since Elvis Loveless got back into this portfolio, I've been trying to get in contact with him or his executive assistant or somebody in his office, and I have literally not received a single response. I've been 100% completely ignored. They do not want to talk about the issue. And I believe it's because they know that there's nothing that they can say to me to ethically justify their actions and inaction on this issue. They, they, they know that they're wrong, and they just have no interest in fixing it. And, I mean, if you're talking about – I heard you said it just then, and I heard you say it earlier in the week, the, the negative – the real-world negative impacts that this has happened on people, I mean – I've been avoiding saying some of this because it's, you know, it's personal. But if I'm being completely open and honest about all this, I mean, the facts of my situation alone here, and this is one of many situations that have been affected by these 
these Lands Act issues. I mean, the Abbots who I bought the land from had to endure a great deal of stress in their 80s, stress and anxiety because of all this. So has me and my family. The Abbots are out over $50,000 because of what the Crown did to them. My wife and I have been dealing with a very high stress situation for three years this month, and there's currently no real end in sight. I've had the growth and development of my business severely stalled because of this. I have three full years of lost revenue that I should have had through the use of that land. Because of that lost revenue, I also have a really hard time continuing to make meaningful contributions to my retirement fund, my RRSPs. So the government is also negatively impacting my retirement down the line. And I can't even begin to describe to you the amount of mental and emotional impact that they have had on me in the last three years. I mean, I've had many times over the last three years where, uh, to be honest, I've had complete emotional breakdowns because of this. I've cried. I've been extremely angry. I've questioned my own decision-making to move my family and my business to this property. I felt that maybe I'm the cause of all this stress and anxiety on my family because I made the decision to take this on to begin with, but I'm not. It's not my doing. It is their fault. All of these issues have come about because they are making this problem and because they refuse to acknowledge the problem. They refuse to acknowledge me, the Abbots, the Diamonds, the Fishers and Bonavista, and everyone else who is suffering because of their actions and their inaction to fix this problem. It's so unnecessary. Uh, Adam, I know you wanted to get a lot off your chest here this morning. Have you done so? Do you, would you like to say anything else before? I, there's actually someone in the queue once to ask a question about Crown Lands. I'm not sure what it is, but would you like to say anything else? Yeah, the, the last thing that I would like to say is that since all this started happening three years ago, I've explained this whole issue to a lot of different people who were curious about it. And most people have had some form of the same thing in response to me. I have a deed to my land. I don't have an issue. And even after showing them the land atlas map online and after telling them that the Abbots had deeds and surveys and affidavits and after trying to explain that based on my knowledge and my experience over the last three years, they 100% definitely have this problem. They still feel that they have a deed and there's no problem, which is understandable. I get it and I agree with them. They have a deed, a survey, a bill of sale. They've lived there for decades, and everything that they need to prove legitimate ownership of their land, it is their land. But the problem is not with them or me or any other private citizen in this problem, in this province. The, the, the problem lies with the government, the minister responsible, and the Crown Lands Division specifically. And they're actively going out of their way to make sure that this is a problem for people. And it's not right. Adam, I appreciate your time. Thanks, Patty. Take care. You too. I mean, <laughs> I guess we're just going to have to see if we... Because he's right. I don't think we've heard much from the government on this front. There was three proposals for when Derek Bragg was the minister responsible. They were pretty quickly rebuffed as being any type of real solution by not only Greg French, but by many others. And even when there's a private member's mo a resolution on the floor, that was brought forward by Pleman Forsey. Voting it down is fine, but how about a bit more detail as to why you voted it down? What your solutions might be, because Adam Furlong's story is not a lone voice in the wilderness. It's one of many. There's going to be thousands 
and thousands of these crown-related matters if we don't figure it out. And that's just thousands and thousands of unnecessary, unduly foolish uh, actions being taken on these issues regarding crown lands. And I'm talking residences and small businesses like Adams, not wind farms and all the rest. Okay, let's see what John has on five. John, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you today? That's kind, you. So I think Adam kind of answered the question I was wondering about because my 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 uh, wife's parents listen to Open Line and they're they're panicked now. They're in their eighties and they worked their whole lives. They got the pot of land that they like to hand on to their children when they go, and now they're frightened to death. Listen, uh, listen to all this going on that the government can come in at any time now and pluck it right out from underneath their feet. And um, and that's and I guess and by listening to what Adam's saying it doesn't matter if you've got a deed to the land you've got a bill of sale and you've lived there for years if the government says no but that's ours uh, they could come in and take it. Is that the way I'm understanding this? Well, if it's crown land. And there is a land use atlas on the province's website where you can get a pretty close determination of whether or not you're on crown land. If they are considering selling or downsizing or leaving it to a family member or what have you, it's probably well worth their while to figure that out sooner than later. And th- th- that can be done. And it does need to be triggered by uh, a real estate transaction. So if I was your parents, look, that's one of the worries that I have here, right? Is when we take on these stories and these issues it may indeed cause some listeners to panic but I think it's probably and I hope your parents aren't panicked but it's probably better for people to be aware of what's going on versus get caught off guard at the 11th hour when the deal is almost done and they've bought a new home or they've got a a deposit on an apartment or something so as opposed to hopefully people not being afraid we're just trying to make people aware so that they get out in front of these things so if I was you and your family I'd try to figure this out sooner than later if whether or not that property is crown or theirs. Okay, so uh, can you just throw that website at me again where uh, I, can, I can get them to go check? If you just Google up uh, Government of Newfoundland and Labrador Land Use Atlas, you'll be brought to the department and there'll be a link right there on the page for the, for the atlas. And it's Perfect. pretty fundamental to use. If you have any trouble, get back to me and I'll see what I can do. Okay, thanks very much. No problem, John. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. That's the tricky piece of it here, isn't it? Is information is hopefully power as opposed to driven with fear and i also have that concern even when we talk about things as fundamental as covid if that word is brought up it's for information it's not to say covid lockdown mandate it's not that at all it's just people not knowing what's going on is the least helpful thing you know bit of info for awareness you Treat it and use it however you see fit, I suppose. Let's take a break. We'll get back. Gerald's there in the queue to talk about wind energy. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Gerald. You're on the air. Is that me? That's you. Yeah, Patty, um, I'd rather have a root canal than do this. But I feel I I must. Okay, go ahead. I've got a question for you and for the minister. Okay. What's the main reason we're we're going this wind farm route? I mean, we don't have to. So what's the main reason, could you tell me? Well, it's certainly not a question for me because I have nothing to do with it. But you you obviously have thoughts on the matter. Sorry again? You obviously have thoughts on the matter as to the rationale. What do you think it is? Well, it seems to me so that John Risley can make money. Well, I would imagine everybody behind the four that are moving forward have the want to make money, sure. So we're willing to sacrifice our, our land, uh, 500,000 500, uh, 500, hectares, 
to pass over to uh, to these people so they can make money? I mean, this is, we don't need this power. So if we're making money, I presume it's, it's for the government to, to make money. Could you tell me how much how much they get from this? The government forecasts, and I mean, these are very specific and sort of strange numbers, but anyway, if we're talking about what they've told us, they say that in the form of expanding the tax base, which is one thing we get is jobs. They say at its peak it'd be 11,694 jobs. How long would they last, do you know? 30, well, that's construction jobs, so that would only last for the short term. For a short time. Yeah, absolutely, you're right there, because permanent full-time operating staff would not be nowhere near that big peak number of over 11,500. Yep. Then they talk about lifespan numbers and contribution yep. to GDP. They these are their numbers yeah. verified I can't verify them because I haven't seen all the details yeah. it's $206 billion uh, over the lifespan of 35 to 40 years for GDP and $11.7 billion of revenue for, to the province based on all the crown land use fees water royalties and the like so we've, we've opted to go the wind, the wind route and not go the oil route because uh, this is coming from Ottawa apparently and they've put a nix, a nix on, the out, on our offshore and they've supplemented with this this wind business. Is that correct? Not really, uh, because the clean tech manufacturing tax credits and stuff, it's not just about hydrogen. It's, it's much broader than that. And the only oil project that's in play at this moment in time is uh, been greenlit. The business, the company itself has decided not to pursue it at this moment in time. So there's but there's billions of barrels out there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden they've decided, but apparently that that uh, this came from nowhere. All of a sudden, Equinor stopped to stop the development. They come on they have a negative on it, and all of a sudden this wind business sort of appears on the on the, on the screen. You know what I mean? So, so as far as I'm concerned, this is coming from Ottawa, and the, the province is bankrupt. And we're, we're, we are subject to blackmail from them. If, uh, this is Ottawa's project, and they're for, forcing Newfoundland to go this route rather than the oil route. That's what it seems to me. And there's all kinds of negative effects from this. And I don't think these things should, should go ahead at all without the complete agreement of the residents. They're the people that have to live with it. And there's all kinds of negative effects from it. There's, you know what they you know what they are on the wildlife and the birds, etc., etc. There's all kinds, and that's played down, and it's, and it's hidden by four thousand four thousand pages of technical uh, gobbledygook that's hiding something. And what's they're hiding is these things. These things are monstrosities, and they're vandalizing the land. This is a terrible way to go, as far as I'm concerned. And we, and we don't have to do it. That's what kills me about it. Well, when we look at what was initially in play, there was the possibility for 1.7 million hectares of land, so now we're much less than that. Uh, uh, you use the proper number, in and around uh, 500,000. So well, that's... Pardon me, Paddy. Look at the foster making over the postage stamp that the Crown lands are giving out. But they'll take uh, five, 500, uh, half a million hectares and pass over to some guy to make money. And we get scraps from it. Over 40 years, that, that's, that's... If you want to compound that, that's not... not a big lot of money, not compared to what the oil would, be, would go if we went that route. I think the government are, are, are desperate to, to go along with this thing. Uh, well, I'm, a, I'm a senior. I, I hate to see what's happening to the oil. That this is the last straw. They've presided over, our governments have presided over the, des, the fisheries to decline. They brought us mus, muskrat falls. They've, they got the province $550 billion in debt. These people are not, not to be trusted for anything. 
Do you feel the same way with land use and environmental impact? Because, you know, you speak to the environment with the wind turbines, and it's real. No one can deny it. But then, of course, it's we talk... It's three Jesus. times higher than the Confederation building. Yes, I know. And you're not going to notice these things? No, I don't think anybody said you're not going to notice them, no. I just wonder if people feel the same way about land use when we talk about, like, one of the big contributors in the future will, without question, be the mining industry, which comes with a significant environmental impact. But because this uh, feels... Me, Patty. Oh, pardon my goodness. Me, Go ahead. But the, the, the mining is generally underground and in one spot. This is 500,000 uh, uh, hectares. There's a big difference, Patty. Well, the biggest mine in the province is just now going underground. It's been scraping the surface of the ground for the decades it's been in place, so they're not all underground. I get, I get the point, but it comes with a massive uh, implication environmentally, just for me, and I'll get, you, I'll get your feedback on this. This feels like a different concern and level of concern from some because we've never done it before. We know what oil looks like. We know what mining looks like. We know what forestry looks like. We know what fishery looks like because we've been involved in it, but we've never been involved with this, so the unknown is leading to, I would think, many of the concerns. What do you think? I don't, I don't know what's unknown about it. Anyone with eyes to see that these things come in to generate wind power, do not rely. We, we know they will, and what they do to the environment, what they do to wildlife, what, what, they, what they do to the noise effects. There's all kinds of negative effects from this, and we don't have to do it. Novus, uh, Parsons bragged yesterday, yesterday that Nova Scotia is ahead of us on this and so on. But there's one exception. Nova Scotia, those things are going offshore. Here, because it's so damn convenient to put it over, over on, on, on the Port Port Peninsula, it's an ideal spot. Look at, look at it, you know, it's ideal. We don't have to go offshore. It's great for us. No wonder he wants to do it. I could, if I was in Port of Basque, I'd be taking up arms, or not Port of Basque, Port of Port or whatever. If I was a young man, I'd be taking up arms over this rather and see this go ahead. You mean? I, I, you might get around against it, I guess you get that. So you, you mean that metaphorically, I guess. What's that? You, metaphorically speaking taking up arms and, and you, you say about you know public support for yeah. that's been a real back and forth the whole time like i have no yeah. earthly idea how many people on the port of port peninsula are all in or all opposed to it and they call that the concept of a social license what percentage do you think because there's never going to be 100 percent consensus on anything in this world anything period so what do you think the percentage of the population in support of would constitute public support and social license what do you think that number would be or should be if this is as good as they tell us, it should be 100%. But, you, I mean, you and I both know there's never been an, an issue under the sun that 100% of people agree on. Yeah. Well, I suppose you split it down that those, those will gain money from it. I suppose, I suppose the mayors of, of these small towns or whatever that are desperate for the money, they, they would go along with it, yes. I can say, okay, I, that being the reason. But there's, people, there's people, in, as far as I'm concerned, in Confederation that will sell their mother for money, get money into the uh, a broke treasury. To compromise. We're living on Ottawa's, uh, Ottawa's credit card, and Ottawa will say, "What's to say, you know, Ottawa will you go you you favor our our wind project, and we we have no problem backing your debt, you know, that you're in, up to your eyeballs in." The province would have no problem backing the federal debt. Is no, backing, you know, we. Um, or the other way around. Oh, it would uh, the problems with you know going going this wind route because uh, to my mind this is coming mostly from Ottawa because you can see the, the, the Freeland in other places doing the same thing. This is a federal, a federal initiative coming from the environmental zealots in Ottawa. That's the seed of it. That's for the root of it. 
I don't think Fury drank this up on his own. I don't know. Certainly the federal government has made no bones about their appetite for the transition and alternative forms of energy. That's undeniable. I mean, I, I, no one can push back on, on that because they talk about it all the time themselves. That's using their own words. Yes, Doc O'Keefe was right. They closed down the offshore in a heartbeat if they could. They're, they're environmental zealous, Paddy. But they can, but they didn't. Yes, because they can't. They, they can't because it would be political suicide. But if they could, they would. That's, now, that's my, my take on it. And I appreciate you sharing your take with us this morning. Gerald, would you like to say anything else? Yes, if Newfoundland goes, I say, look, if we go this route, your, your, your children and grandchildren will curse you. That's my, what I take on it, what they've done to the land. Thank you, sir. Okay, thank you, Paddy. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, just take a break. When we come back, Jeff Powers in the queue to talk about medical costs and delays in getting treatment for his son. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Jeff. You're on the air. Uh, hello, Patty. How are you today? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. How about you? Oh, pretty good, Patty. I, I guess uh, if you, we're call, I'm calling in this morning to share um, uh, some of our story uh, of our son's medical care up to his to date. And more recently, uh, we had to travel out of province for surgery and our experience with the MTAP program. And I guess I'd just like to start by giving a bit of background on our son's case. Clark uh, Clark was born with a condition. It's a congenital birth defect called sagittal craniosynostosis. And uh, the treatment for, you know, he was diagnosed as a child and, and uh, referred by his family doctor to the uh, neurosurgeons at the Janeway. Clark, uh, the, the, the condition causes children's brains to uh, not grow properly in Clark's case his head or, uh, his head to not grow properly in Clark's case he uh, his condition was described by his doctors as a, a bossing like a forward protrusion of his forehead and a bulleting they describe it like a more narrow but protrusion on the back of his head so the, the treatment for for this condition is uh, preventative surgery left untreated the, the, the child's brain can develop improperly and cause you know developmental issues issues of vision and hearing stuff like that uh, you know on top of the physical deformity of the skull so Clark was uh, Clark was was uh, seen by the neurosurgeons at the Janeway. He had surgery when he was one year old. Uh, it mostly fixed his his issues, but uh, mostly fixed the the front of his head. But uh, you know, in follow up with the surgeons at the Janeway, eventually we got referred to um, the IWK, the Women's and Children's Hospital in Halifax, for mm-hmm. further revision surgery on the back of his head. So that that referral t- took place last year. We had a few few uh, consultations over Zoom with the surgeons. They had us file, et cetera, et cetera. And we we went to um, to Halifax to have the surgery performed in January of this year. So that all you know went great. There's no real issue to, to, with the care that he's received. It's been fantastic, honestly, from both hospitals. Uh, and and you know on our trip to Halifax we tried to tried to keep it pretty modest you know my wife and I and Clark all went together we stayed around McDonald House you know most of our time was spent in the hospital anyway we were there for uh, I believe it was uh, pretty much two weeks uh, we were a bit delayed coming home and as a result we had to make a, 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 a we had he, we weren't able to leave on the day of our scheduled flight we had to rebook flights. Uh, you know, cost us some some money to do that. Uh, 
so when when we got back, uh, I'm not even I can't really remember if we were aware of the MTAP program prior to it, but we were made aware, and we said, well, you know, to cover some of our costs, we would apply for the medical assistance. So we applied in February uh, 27th. Um, we we put it in. I have. I actually have. A, I wrote down all the dates of our correspondence and emails for updates and stuff like that with MTAP. But rather than get into all the granular details of it, we did apply in February 27th. We followed up. Sometime later, we're told our application was lost and we need to resend this. We did that um, in, in around May. We were told, uh, you know, we had called multiple times, eventually got a hold of someone on July 18th. They told us they couldn't really see all the details in their system, but that it was, uh, you know, the travel, the medical procedure was deemed unnecessary and that uh, we'd be getting a letter in mail. So we waited patiently for that letter with, for another 10 days or so, didn't receive it, uh, reached out to our MHA, who's Helen Conway Onheimer, to see if there was anything she could do about it. They followed up repeatedly. Um, eventually, we got our letter uh, that's made the statement in the letter that travel was not deemed medically necessary, and as a result, our claim was rejected. This, uh, we received that letter on August 15th, uh, which is 165 days after we first applied for the assistance. Um, so, you know, that, that was kind of a difficult thing to to, get, to receive for someone to tell you that, uh, you know, the, the surgery that that um, neurosurgeons at both IWK and the Janeway thought was necessary to fix a congenital birth defect that your child had was unnecessary. But I, honestly, I found the, the wording of the letter a little vague, so I, I, I wrote a letter myself back to, to the manager of insured services at Labrador Affairs. I, um, the application for MTAP, you know, all we really had to put in there was referral. That's all they asked for. So I, I wrote a letter to try and explain Clark's situation a bit a bit more in detail, right, for their benefit. Um, I sent that, and that, that was, you know, we've been talking to our MHA, and, and I copied Lisa Dempster, who I under, uh, Minister Dempster, who I understand is the Minister of Labor Affairs, who's only recently been put in charge of this department with the government. Um, they confirmed, when, I sent, when we sent that letter, they confirmed they'd received it and they would respond to us in writing on August 16th. So uh, just a couple of days ago, two weeks later, we did get a, we did, we never did receive any writing. We got another phone call, and basically um, they gave us they gave us their explanation for why they felt it wasn't medically necessary, and uh, you know which to us was was hard to uh, receive. <laughs> Before we get to what they said, and I have the timeline and uh, various details because okay. I've seen Carolyn's post. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so when the doctors recommended this surgery, what was the rationale coming from actual medical professionals about the necessary procedure that they were t- talking about? What did they say? And what, why, was it preventative to keep from something worse happening to Clark, or how was that yeah. couched? Yeah, and, I, and I, guess, I guess this is kind of the crux of what, what's going on here. And, and, and uh, you know, Clark, Clark was three years old when we were doing this. Clark, to that point, you know, having undergone one surgery and receiving all kinds of follow-up care with, at the Janeway, had not developed any of the developmental 
delays or brain growth delay or issues that are so, can be associated with this condition. He had a, um, you know, Clark, Clark has a, 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 a modified car seat. Uh, you know, he, he, he prior to his more recent surgery, we couldn't even fit like adult uh, bicycle or hockey helmets on him, and. That was part of our discussion with with uh, the surgeon at the Janeway, and but also you know this is preventative surgery. If if left untreated, it is possible that uh, more brain issues could could develop. He he didn't have them to that point, but that is within the realm of possibilities. And and uh, in in the referral to the to the uh, IWK. You know, there's some discussion around parts of resolving this defect in his first surgery that was that was not able to be accomplished. So I don't, I don't know if uh, I don't know what the people at, at MTAP are thinking, but you know, Clark has a congenital defect and it wasn't fixed and it needed to be fixed. So so that is why we went to uh, to Halifax to get the surgery. It, it all sounds fairly straightforward to me, albeit a very complicated issue for Clark and the family. Uh, and I'm just talking about the process here. Um, so have you been able to, or is it a possibility that the neurosurgeons at the Janeway or the surgeons in Halifax are willing to talk about the medical necessity of this to put this through MTAP and, you know, for once and for all, hear from a doctor versus the concerned parent? So th- so this, this, I guess, is where my, my issue is. And, and honestly, Patty, like, uh, I don't even really care that much about the claim like i said we made a pretty pretty we we had a pretty modest uh claim i would say it's less than a thousand dollars if if we were paid in full for it and and i i've uh, this this to me feels wrong the, the solution that they gave was to go for us to go back to the surgeon at the janeway and have him write a letter describing this to them now like Cranial synostosis is a fairly well understood uh, uh, disease. Like one in, I think the number is like one in two thousand. This is this is how you treat it so that kids don't have issues in the future. Clark didn't have any issues up to that point, but like this is this is how it's treated. Uh, the second surgery where he's at an older age, and uh, uh, usually it's this surgery will be done before they're a year old. But where he was at an older age, that was why we were sent to IWK. The, the doctors at the Janeway weren't able to take it on. So um, we could go that route. Honestly, like that probably cost the healthcare system more money than just paying our claim. And and this, like I said, is not really about the money. To me, I understand. We fulfilled all the obligations of the program uh, exactly as it's described on the. On the um, website, medically necessary is not a defined term. But basically, if you look it up, some, if something is medically necessary, it's covered by MCP. Everything that Clark has had to date has been covered by MCP. So for us to to get this counter opinion, which to me seems like a bunch of bureaucratic red tape for some reason, that. What the College of Physicians and the medical insurance plans, medical care plans, agree is is medically necessary. So 
somebody in the Confederation building has a different opinion. Like, I, I, this seems so wrong to me. And it kind of, like, makes me understand some of the stuff that I've read in the news about the issues with the MTAP program. And at, at this point, honestly, like, I know Minister Dempster has only been in charge of uh, this department since May of this year. And really, I'm on here today more to try and bring light to some of the frustrations that we've seen with it and some of some of the issues so that hopefully she hears it and, and can do something about it. I, we wrote her a, a similar letter expressing much of what I'm saying here now. And Jeff, I think you've That's done right. exactly that. The program has been flawed on a variety of fronts. You know, getting money after the fact, when for, say for instance you need repeated travel from Labrador, getting mm-hmm. money after the fact doesn't necessarily make it easy for people to travel for necessary care. Uh, I wish you, Carolyn and Clark, well, and I appreciate you making time for the program. I know it's difficult. Yeah, no problem, Patty. Thank you. Good luck, sir. Okay, Okay, Jeff, bye-bye. That's some story. Uh, Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line one. Eugene, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad. Thanks, you. Uh, Good, Patty. Well, not too bad. Uh, Yeah, uh, well, hope you... Have a wonderful day, wonderful weekend, and to everyone out there, Patty, uh, please be safe. And the reason why I'm calling this morning is because of the number of moose accidents we're having, and we had another one last night on the West Coast. And, Patty, I I got a big concern because, you know, I started SOPAC back in 2009 for the same reason. We were having people getting injured and killed, and I'm, I'm a victim of a bad moose accident. And more can be done, Patty. And what's happening now is the people are calling me from across the province and asking me, where is SOPAC, Save Our People Action Committee? Now, I have a big concern. I'm not the chair anymore, and I'm not the voice chair. I'm still a member, but our executive is having some problems, like our, our chair has been sick lately and not well. And I'm sorry to hear that, and I've been in contact with her. So we need our SOPAC committee revived. We need some action, and there's no action. And here it is, the 1st of September, neither ad on the radio the summer. VOCM usually has the head covered for us. That wasn't on the summer, uh, and uh, last summer it wasn't put on until October. Uh, you know, the, the the transportation is doing a wonderful job with the paving. Actually, my buddy is driving now around the TCH. Uh, and, and we thank them for the paving they're doing. It's a wonderful job. But, Patty, in the ditches where the brush has been cut in the last year or two, because of that upgrading, the brush is back faster than ever now with the hot sun and the tropical temperatures or whatever, Evan, faster than ever before. And it's unnecessary. And, you know, whether it's a six-year-old girl with a brain injury or a 50-year-old person killed, we had four people killed in the last year, the government got to take it serious, and I got to get the executive back on track, and, and I got people across the province that wants to support me. We got to get more done. Like, you cut the brush, and it just grows back faster than ever before. All they would have to do is grow it off, seed it. You got some grass in your ditches, like I've said before, like the Atlantic provinces got. So they're not listening to us. They're not listening to the people, and they should be listening because... It can happen to either one of them. Like when that moose comes on the highway, there's no choice once. And I, I have, uh, you know, it's it's something got to be done. We had three people killed in the the Southbrook area, in the in the, in the very close vicinity, 
and nothing has been done since. The brush hasn't been touched. There's no fencing done. We haven't got an inch of fencing since the Liberals took over. And don't they care about our people? I mean, you know, you've got to have an art for this stuff. I mean, you know, whether it's a 50-year-old man or a 51-year-old man or a 6-year-old girl with a brain injury. I mean, we got, they got to have an art for this. they got to listen to us. And you know what? I'm going to revive SOPAC, and they're going to listen because I'll demonstrate like I did before, and I'll make the liberals, let the liberals know. And, and Lucy Stiles, an MHA that was my co-chair, and, I mean, had her daughter injured in the moose accident and was very outspoken. Since she got in politics, her mouth has been sealed. Not one sound from her. That's not good enough, Lucy. I'm sorry. And I was talking to her a few nights ago. It, I'm sorry. That's not good enough. You can do more. we got to save our people from getting injured and killed, and I'm going to revive. And I challenge the, the executive of SOPAC to please get in contact with me, and we can get a public meeting on the go. My number is 709-486-7373. If there's anyone out there that wants to call me, and I've been getting lots of calls because of the, the number of moose accidents. Patty, it's just insane. More got to be done, and it's going to get done. We got to get action. It's save our people action committee, not dead in the water like it has been. So, who's the current chair? Don't know, sir. I've heard the name, but I, I, I honestly, I honestly can't tell you the name. Uh, I, I can't repeat it. Lucy told me there uh, a few nights ago, but I can't repeat it because I can't remember the, the name. And, I, and at the time, I do have memory problems, and at the time, I didn't have my notepads with me. So, uh, but the, the co-chair, if Linda's sick and God bless her heart, I wish she, she wish her well. You know, that's that's you know, and she can't be active if she's if she's sick. This got to be passed on. The co-chair, please give me a call. We need a meeting ASAP. We're getting people injured and killed, and it can be prevented if we can force the government to listen like they have done in the Atlantic provinces and are saving loose, like I told you before, 95% where, where, where they, have, they, have, they have seeded it and they have put, cut, uh, put uh, fencing. So why isn't our people important enough to do it in Newfoundland? I, I just don't understand, Patty. Go ahead, Patty. Uh, I was just going to ask, are you even still formally involved with SOPAC at all? I am a member. I am a member, and, you know, I've called in a lot, and I must be a pain in your neck because I called in too much. But and, and, and but the public is listening, and they says, Eugene, please revive SOPAC. Please get some action on the go. Like I just had my, my, my brother-in-law killed, or my, my, you know, the list goes on. And we got to get SOPAC back to where it was, and I'm challenging the executive right now. Please get old to me. We will have a public meeting ASAP, and we need action. And that brush that I'm seeing right now as I'm driving to Trans-Canada, I'm not driving, my friend is, that was only cut there a couple of years ago where they're upgrading, and now it's back to five or six feet. And, and it's just insane, Patty. Like, the government got to listen. I mean, you know, our loved ones is worth it. we we got to get action. I appreciate the time, Eugene. We'll reach out to the current chair and maybe even Miss Stoyles to see if she's taken what was once something, something near and dear to her heart into the uh, caucus room for those types of meetings, if there's anything afoot that she can update us on. But I appreciate the call. Patty, if you can get some footage on this, God bless your heart and the public would appreciate it, I'm sure. Thanks, Have Eugene. Have a safe weekend, everyone. You too. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. bye-bye. Uh, very quickly before we get to the break and come back and speak with Wanda. So, as of yesterday, the sugar tax was one year old. The province reports has brought in some $11 million in revenue in the past 12 months, but we don't know, the most important part is, what that's meant for consumption. 
No report of whether or not there's been a decrease in the purchase of the products that they attach this sugar tax to, even though some of the exemptions we were told were in play have also been subject to this sugar tax. So $11 million. I remember when this was first introduced, they talked about creating new programs with the money coming in the door. That's not exactly what happened. So that money is going towards initiatives such as continuous glucose, glucose monitoring pilot program, physical activity tax credit, support for recreation, physical activity, athletic and sport development, kids eat smart and the like. So the sugar tax, one year old, and lots of people think it's absolutely foolish. You know, if we're talking about encouragement to make better options and the so-called sin tax, if governments anywhere are serious about ensuring that there's a decrease sugar content in one product or another, maybe just maybe you do what they did in the UK. The people who are making the drinks were forced to lower the sugar content. Surefire way to be in, uh, consuming less sugar. And so it's been controversial. I'm happy to talk about it. But again, it's like many things that we hear reported. Okay, we got the dollars and cents on the revenue side. But what is the purchase habits? Have they changed? Were they selling as many as these drinks uh, in the year prior to this versus the last 12 months? We don't know. That'd be pretty helpful. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of show left for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Wanda, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Thank you for taking my call. I'm fine. Thanks for calling. Um, I'm in kind of a desperate situation, and I'm hoping that um, you or some of your listeners can, you know, help me out. Um, I have a friend who is 83 years old, and um, she was, back in March, she was diagnosed with um, a slow-growing lymphoma. Um, but when she went for her three-month uh, scan, it turned out that the lymphoma had turned aggressive. So um, she's basically dying. She's 83. Sunday, she was admitted to the hospital. And um, she was living alone prior to this with four cats that she dearly, dearly loves. And um, so now we're in a desperate situation trying to find home, homes for these cats. They're all healthy. They're all well taken care of. I mean, they were her babies, and nothing will make her happier than if these cats found a loving home. They don't have to all go together. I mean, they can be separated. They're very independent, um, you know, on their own. They would function very well. So just kind of in a desperate situation because, you know, time is literally running out, and uh, she's very, very upset and worried about her cats. What part of the province are you calling from? Um, from Hans Harbor. She's, she's from Hans Harbor, so out around Carbonaria at Trinity Bay. Okay. So, uh, I mean, and hopefully this call can help. If it's not a family or families that come forward wanting and willing to take the cats, are you thinking that maybe it's going to be, you know, bring them to an emergency shelter? Because that has become a huge issue. The shelters are absolutely full. Yes, that that was what I've tried already. Yeah, and um, they are full. She she is originally from Nova Scotia. She moved here 20 years ago with her husband, and um, she's got no family here. So we became friends six years ago. She started attending my Bible study here at my home, and we just became really good friends. Um, she's 83, I'm 46, but we kind of just had a special bond. Okay. And so I'm I'm currently her caregiver. She's got no family here. And um, Sunday, I had to bring her to the hospital, and she, she won't be returning home, unfortunately. So we're kind of in a really desperate situation trying to find homes for these cats. There's three females and one male, 
and they're just beautiful cats. I mean, I'm going up every day feeding them and and making sure they're okay. They're currently outside. Um, I can't have them in the house because I'm not really a cat person myself, but I'm just going up and feeding them, and they know me because I've been going to her house so often in the last six years. But, uh, yeah, they're just outside. They're okay. They're, you know, they're, they're good. It's just we need to find loving homes for these cats to make Enid happy because she uh, she loves her cats. Anyone that knows her knows that she loves her cats. So it's kind of a desperate situation. She of course she does. So do you want to share a number or you just want to leave it with David? How would you like to handle this? Um, I'll just leave it with David. That's and fine. if anyone can call in, um, you know, if anyone's willing to travel to come to come get a cat or get a few cats or whatever, I mean, I will be willing to chip in on the gas or even pay for the gas the meals, whatever it takes to get these cats a loving home. Are they outdoor um, cats? You say they are, they are outdoor, so they're outdoor cats? They're outdoor cats now, but she they, they like it outdoors, but she some of them like it inside. Um, but they, they're outdoors right now because I don't have them in the house because there's no one there. I understand. Okay, so David does have your number, and so we'll leave it with him and anyone in and around that part of the province that is interested, would like to help out Enid and yourself, hopefully they'll give you a call. Yeah, or even if they're further away and they would like to travel to come get just to help us out. I mean, I would be willing to, to pay for their gas or whatever to, you know, to, get, to get the cats a loving home to make her happy. I understand, and I'm sure she's appreciative of what you're doing. Thanks for this, Wanda. You're welcome. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Well, I did indeed blow right through the scheduled 10 o'clock news, given the conversation with Jeff, and, of course, it's not... It's not something I want to do to interrupt someone talking about something as important, as traumatic as the care of his child. So what we're going to do is check in on the Twitter before we take a break on time and come back. When we come back, we're talking a bit more wind energy and diesel. And then Elaine's also in the queue. She wants to respond on what she heard from Minister Jerry Byrne last week, what that was exactly about. Not sure. Probably immigration. Let's see what's happening on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Oh, there's actually a Twitter follower. Heard that conversation with Jeff Power regarding the MTAP program and some of the difficulties associated with it. For Mr. Power, he made the point, it's not the money. For him to be told that the procedure that his son Clark got in Halifax was medically unnecessary, therefore his claim was ineligible, is a mouthful when you know that neurosurgeons here, neurosurgeons there, thought it was absolutely necessary. Consequently, they did the procedure. Dean is saying that she had the same issue when she was referred to the Ottawa Heart Institute in November 2017. Six weeks in Ottawa, recovering from the surgery, then the fight to recover a few bucks when you got home. And of course, if you had a heart surgery like that, medically necessary, of course it is is let's take a break don't go away get lost in the music of legendary artists like elton john the beatles and more join claudette barnes every sunday from 12 to 1 p.m and relive fond memories through the power of music with sunday melodies on your vocm welcome back uh let's go five charlie you're on the air yes morning patty morning to you patty a few questions on uh, the world energy thing uh, in stevenville and elsewhere when we talked about it months ago, you've probably forgotten much of this, uh, which I, I ask about the economics of it because it always seemed to me it was a kind of a strange economic uh, or feasible, uh, or lack of feasibility, I should say. I read an article at the time in the Halifax Chronicle or Examiner, not sure which, and uh, I referred you to it. it. 
it was questioning at the time how this uh, this would be uh, economic, you know. Uh, at the time, uh, I think you, one of your replies was that, uh, well, it, it's the company's dime and so on, which, which uh, is understandable. But I, I'm wondering, we're this far along now, and uh, I haven't heard, perhaps, perhaps you have, I haven't heard if there's a model for this elsewhere, how much that energy from that model would be. And um, these markets that we've signed MOUs for, uh, surely at some point they have to talk about a bottom line and, and how much can be made you know, for the company and how much it will sell for. Can you clarify anything on this at all? No, and I don't know how I could possibly do so. I have no earthly idea what the end price point will be because they haven't even started creating it, let alone uh, exporting it and selling it. So I have no idea. But uh, again, like a couple of things. And it's not to be flippant to say that, well, I'm not the customer, so I don't care. But in large part, that's how I feel. Because if the play is, and this was I asked the minister, yesterday, if the business goes sideways or f- completes its lifespan of 35 to 40, th- to 40 years, are the companies with sureties in place 100% wholly responsible for reclamation of the land, taking on the turbines, all of the issues surrounding what the end of life looks like, you know, very similar to what we do with an orphaned well. And if they are on the hook in full, if their business model falls apart, mm, okay. I'm, I'm not so sure how important that is to me. It might be important to others, but if I'm a German, I'm probably wondering what we're going to be charged for energy. If I'm, And again, it's easy enough for me to think one thing or another about it because I don't live close by, much like things regarding muskrat. For folks living along the Grand River, their number one concern was environmental damage. For folks in Port of Port, their number one concern is environmental damage and the eyesore that would be the turbines. But so far as the market goes, I don't know. I, don't, I suppose Risley and other proponents will have to have some idea whether or not their business investment of billions of dollars is going to pay off with profit, but I don't know, Charlie. So we could go ahead with this, and uh, it could it could prove uneconomic, and then we're all the work has been done, the land torn up, and so on. Now you say uh, reclamation. You know what the record of companies have been? Uh, how they can go bankrupt, and uh, how. Uh, provinces and other places can be left to holding the, the bag. Well, that's why sureties, as I specifically asked whether or not that would be money set aside as opposed to hoping that they live to uh, sing another day after the fact. So if the sureties are in place for forecasted cost, that's about the best protection that anyone could put forward, I think. How about you? Well, when companies go bankrupt, I know what's happened in, in, in the past. It, uh, you try and squeeze it out of them and... Uh, Again, the province issues are left all holding it. But anyway, uh, it seems to me that uh, these conversations... By the way, do you know of a model for this kind of energy uh, being produced and sold uh, going to market? No, I, I don't. But I, And again, one more time, it's not flippance, uh, being flippant on my end, but unless they're building it to sell it to me, I'm more concerned with the environment and the wind turbines and reclamation and safety regarding ammonia and all the rest of it. Those would be my provincially based concerns. Whether or not John Risley ever makes a single red cent selling it is sort of his problem. Yeah, I'm not concerned. I'm not as concerned about that either. I'm concerned about uh, what would be a plan B if the economic model doesn't turn out. Do we have these things just sitting there? Uh, 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 can we incorporate them into, into, into a provincial grid? Uh, 
seems to me there should be a plan B because uh, I still think that uh, the whole thing is kind of iffy with shipping that stuff uh, across the Atlantic and no guarantees that uh, Germany won't have other uh, options at that time. Uh, I, I'm not worried about the bottom line of, 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 of the companies either, but I certainly am worried about the after effects. Oh, yeah, of course. I think everyone is. On that front, like, that's not even a question I can ask of Andrew Parsons, because, I mean, what does he have to say to that? Whether it be having Risley back on the program to talk about Plan Bs uh, or Jennifer Williams, which we're trying to get on the program next week, because inside her world uh, at Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, of the some 20 studies looking at diesel generation or uh, maybe utilizing hydrogen, those types of questions, there's a reason I didn't ask Parsons, because how could he possibly know? But with interconnect activity and plan B and where hydro might be able to play a role and incorporate wind into our grid. That's something that's absolutely on my list for Miss Williams. So these companies, presumably, when you do a business plan, you look at profit and uh, you look at the, the, the bottom line and all that. If they know this, and they should at this stage have some idea of where this is going financially, don't we have a right to have access to some of that information? I don't know if we should be getting a peek under the covers of a private sector company on every moving part of their plan. I don't know. It would be nice to know. But you know who will have that information, Charlie? Those who lend them the money. No one's going to lend anybody any money unless they have a business model that's sound and has a proof of concept and all the rest of it. Because whether or not this is an industry in its infancy, if you go to Wall Street or Fleet Street or wherever in this world to borrow money, those are the people that will have those questions. And they'll, if they're not satisfied with the questions, they don't get the money. Well, when we're talking about all this is going to do with the province, uh, all, all the disruption and so on, and we're talking about tax dollars from the federal government, which is all our money, I would suggest that uh, we would have a right to, to, to be able to have a look at some at least preliminary figures on, on, on a project that hasn't been tested anywhere. It seems like to me we're not even asking these questions. But isn't that exactly what happens in the environmental assessment? Uh, no, as far as I, I, I can tell, that's, that's strictly the effects we'll have on caribou and the land and so on. I don't think that's, that's going to be there as far as... Okay, uh, so just r- couch that again for me. So having a look at what in particular? I'm saying that if, if they've done their homework in terms of the feasibility, the economics of it, I'm saying with all they're asking, and they're asking a hell of a lot, surely at some stage... We should be able to, 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 to have a look at the inside workings of the financial workings of ourselves as a province and, and as a country. Okay, fair enough. Uh, to what end? So what would be, you know, lending to the social license and what people may deem to be a good or a bad business plan? Is it about... X percentage or X millions or billions of profit. Let's just say Risley has a plan that, if satisfied over the course of 40 years, makes them a million dollars. Does that make the plan worth moving forward, or is there something else that we would glean from the information, that, in your opinion? I'm not quite sure how, how we would use it, but, but, but certainly knowing where this is going, because it's completely new, certainly it's in our interest and the country's interest to, to have more information on this, because right now we've got a supposed market uh, 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 that could change, as you know, from other sources. Uh, they could get something cheaper elsewhere. There's, there's, I don't think there's a guarantee they'll buy it at any price. And I'm saying it looks like to me 
uh, stuff that we should know is totally up in the air, and and I don't know is it a deliberate thing or if they just don't know themselves and and, and they're not sharing it. Uh, I, I I don't know what's going on. Uh, and I'm not really sure what we do with the information either, but I mean, just look at other industries that we are familiar with and the relationship between the province and those proponents. I don't think we've got to look under the covers with ExxonMobil out at Hebron, uh, and we're in. I mean, we have an equity stake, like we're actually physically in on that one. Uh, mines that have operated here and new mines being approved and proposed. I don't think I've ever heard anyone ask for, you know, documents come from Marathon Gold about what their possibilities, uh, business uh, lucrative might be in the future. But it's, it's an interesting thought. I, I, again, having not thought about it, I don't even know what we do with it necessarily, but fair enough. These you mentioned, these these oil projects, mining and that, these are proven industries. We, we, we have a fair idea of royalties uh, coming in from these companies and that it's a, a pretty well assured thing. This other one we're talking about, where there, where there are no models apparently, this, this is a totally uh, a pie in the sky at, at this stage when it comes to economics. That's all I'm saying. But I'd like to ask something on the uh, uh, muskrat, the uh, diesel they're talking about. Uh, can I skip to that? Sure. Uh, seems to me there was a while back they said there could be major repairs on muskrat could be closed down for months, maybe years, to have these repairs done. I didn't hear much about it after, but it looks like to me they're saying that uh, what they're looking at would be sources that would replace Holyrood, which we've heard before. I would suggest that possibly they're talking about because muskrat might be on the downside for God knows how long, that and we've got commitments to Nova Scotia, that this thing of looking at diesel, which 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 to me is a terrible thing, but anyway, uh, seems to me that that's the reason they're going to look at this, and and they're not talking about how much this is going to cost uh, extra on our bills. They haven't, I guess, they haven't been far enough along on that yet. But uh, what 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 do you think this is for? Is it really for Holy Root, or is it because Muskrat looks like big problems ahead? I think it's all of that. So if they're forecasting an increase in demand, whether it be with tra- people moving away from oil-fired heat in their home to other sources, and that's happening, that's undeniable. I mean, because I know a dozen people that are working on it right this minute because the Canada Greener Home Grants, the most recent $157 million program. So that's happening. Does that constitute a doubling in demand? I really don't know. I think Hydro is at the study stage and no further along at this point. If they're doing 20 studies and one includes diesel, fair ball. Muskrat? 100% is completely unreliable at this moment in time. Not because I say so, because Hydro said so. It hasn't undergone that 900 megawatt test. They're talking about the need to rebuild in full at least one of the units, unit number four. There could be impacts further than that. There's still concerns with reliability across the Labrador Island Link. There's concerns with the robust nature of the transmission lines in the long-range mountains. There's concerns at Soldier's Pond. So I would imagine if the demand increase, muskrat, I know they're trying to negotiate the regulatory regime on offshore wind. So I imagine all those factors are part of this and including the forecasted potential possible decommission of Holyrood in 2030. I think it's all of the above. So instead of uh, Muskrat being uh, providing us with with the shore energy supply and so on, all all it's done is is create more uncertainty. We still have Holyrood. I, I, I can't even begin to describe uh, how much of uh, a, a debacle the whole thing is. Would you 
agree with that. I think everyone does, Charlie. I, I, again, you're asking everyone. me to answer questions on behalf of people that I, I have no authority in these areas, yeah, right? Not, not everyone. You, you, you still have a certain percentage of the population and people who were responsible for this project who still say it's a great thing in the future and so on. And all they're doing is uh, looking, looking somewhere to the future and saying it's got to work out sometime. You know what I mean? Well, some people might think... Nothing's working out. Sure. Some people might think it's going to be whatever in the future, but today, anyone with a sense of reality knows that if it's not working today, after all the years it's been sanctioned and the explosion of schedule and the erosion of budget, or no, I guess the explosion of budget, today it's not good, no matter who you are, from former Premier Williams all the way down the line. To anyone to tell me today that it's good is just whistling past the graveyard, complete and utter nonsense. Will it work out better than today in the future? I don't know. Okay, it looks like to me they've uh, abandoned reality, but uh, anyway, believe that. But, but Patty, uh, uh, back to the pricing. Uh, uh, can you ask at least when you get people on, like Risley and them, uh, how, how much has been done with looking at the final cost of energy and that? Uh, e- even if they say we've got no right to know, which I don't agree with at all, uh, it, w- it would be nice to get some kind of a handle on uh, where, where the heck all that's going b- before everything gets approved, you know? I suppose uh, it's going to take a while to build and export. Uh, whatever the price is today won't be the price tomorrow. And, you know, they have if. Projections. Uh, what? They have projections. Of course they do, Charlie. I'm happy to ask. Sure. Yeah. I'm uh, sure the lenders are asking. They have projections, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks, Patty. Take care, Charlie. Okay. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. Let's take a break. Elaine, you're next to talk about whatever you heard from Jerry Byrne last week. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Elaine, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, I have a, a number of uh, points I would like to make. So if it's okay, I'll just start so I <laughs> make sure I have the time to get in everything that I want to say. All right, go ahead. Okay, first of all, I want to agree with Mr. Byrne in that there are certainly a number of good news stories uh, out there for Ukrainians. A lot of them were very fortunate to have language and as a result got good jobs and, and probably good places because they got them early on in the game. And I'm going to speak from my experience. I interact with dozens of Ukrainian families every week. So I'm speaking from my experience. Uh, The reality for most of the families I deal with is not the reality that Mr. Burns spoke about. They are struggling. Um, Some of them are feeling panicked because of these uh, letters that they get. I think the second one arrived, uh, I don't know, probably a month ago now. But it was sent out at 5 o'clock on a Friday afternoon when the ANC offices had just closed. And I was downtown with my family uh, having supper in the pedestrian mall, and my phone just blew up for the next two hours. People called, and they didn't know what to do. They had to be out by August 3rd. And, uh, you know, like it just created unnecessary panic and fear. And uh, one of the... Uh, I guess, isolated incidents was the one that Mr. Byrne referred to about the family who were in the hotel and, you know, saving their money to buy a home, et cetera. Well, we knew about that back in April. So why did it take from April till August 
to deal with that situation. It was obviously a situation, you know, they were abusing the system. So why not, why wait all that time to deal with it? Then there was the point about refusing, people have been refusing apartments. I've taken many people to see apartments and the main reason people refuse apartments is the price. If you clear $2,300 a month and your rent is $1,800, pay your own utilities. It's just not possible to rent a house like that. They might love the apartment. They desperately want to be out of the hotel, but it's just not feasible. And that is the main reason. Well, that and that would be the same reason for, uh, regardless of who you are, where you're from. Exactly. You know, yes. price pressure is very, very real. Obviously. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, with regard to the headline that was in the Telegram about, um, I think it was called advocates need to work hand in hand with AMC. That is exactly what if if advocates are volunteers which I think it was because I think uh, he was probably responding to Pat Power's comments. That's exactly what we do. I do it on a daily basis. I have ANC contacts. I, I, in the last three days, I got four offers of apartments or houses from individuals in the community, friends, uh, business people, and they messaged me. They're not op- They're not out there. And so I send them to to my contacts at ANC. Same thing happens with jobs, you know. This is uh, one of the uh, ANC people wrote me and she said, "Thank you for looking after the blank families matters. They are very grateful, and me as well. Thanks for everything you are doing for them. Their situation is so vulnerable. Sorry that we can't help enough. Thanks to you, their situation is getting brighter and brighter. Many thanks." And then another one for a job said, thanks for the information, Elaine. I will forward it to our employment team. Thanks for all your help. And to my knowledge, all volunteers are doing the same. We are working hand-in-hand with ANC. And they are working their butts off trying to, you know, address all the needs. Uh, Let's see. Um, I think the process, like I said, of, of eviction is really... Like, I I find that very upsetting. And, like, I've made this suggestion, like, if people are in the hotel and they can't find a place, why don't they charge them what they would pay for, you know, what they can afford to pay for a rental? So if they can pay $1,000, charge them $1,000 while they're there. Sure, yep. Like, like that, that just is not rocket science at all. It just makes sense, you know. And I guess the other question is, why are, they, why are they bringing people in? You know, we can't look after what we have. I've seen people go out in awful, awful apartments because they're so pressured to be out by a certain date. There was a lady who went, saw this awful basement apartment the other day. There were, you know, the little mice boxes all over the place. And she said, are there mice? And Oh, he said, no, just upstairs where another Ukrainian family lived, as if mice chose where to live and the air quality. You know, but she, she was, you know, she said, oh, I have to take it. I can't be out on the street. You know, I have another family that reached out to me a month ago. 
they were in a temporary rental in Mount Pearl on July 26th. They had to be out August 1st. I went there. They had no, they didn't speak any English. Their English was probably the worst of anyone that I've encountered. Uh, they had no English. Their little boy was there. He's seven. Uh, he, they had no jobs. They ran out of money. They ran out of food. And they were desperate. So I took them and, you know, and we managed to find jobs, temporary jobs, you know, just doing odd jobs. He was a carpenter. She was a cleaner. We got the little boy into day camp. We found them an apartment. And now Tuesday they're starting, both of them are starting, thanks to a business contact in the community, they're both starting Jobs. Good news. You know, and like that's just one of many, many, many stories. So these people are struggling. You, I'm sure you heard uh, Margarita on the OCM last week. I mean, I dropped things off to her the other day. They found a house. She's renting her family with her kids, another f- friend, and then there's another lady and her mother. So they had to get a place together. They, you know, just to make, you know, and like, I wouldn't want to live that way with my family. If I had children, you know, it would be fine if there's just adults. But, and she's working seven days a week. And when I was there at eight o'clock, she just got home from work. She looked exhausted, you know, and uh, it's, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah, the, so the problem there is. There are lots of good, good news stories, but I tell you, there's lots that are not. That's always going to be the way, isn't it? You know, yeah. it's easy enough for the government to want to paint a very rosy picture. I mean, and that's all very predictable. But the fact is, there's always going to be newcomers, whether they be from Ukraine or anywhere else, yeah. that have a hard time finding a job and learning the language and getting a spot and, uh, and adjusting to life in a new country with new cultures and traditions and people they've never seen before in their life. It's, it's always going to be this way. Oh Nothing's God. ever going to be yeah. perfect. The, the good no. news stories, sure. I mean, I know friend of mine who has hired a couple of Ukrainian welders couldn't be happier with the work they do Mm -hmm. and their attention to detail and their uh, commitment to the job I know some other personal family stories that people share with me where they're doing quite well and then they hear your stories so I'm not surprised that there's still many families haven't got haven't got it figured out or are not yet settled yeah and they're mostly the ones with no language and you know and like there was a a friend of mine there uh, on Facebook last night and he he's been here seven months and he's still not in language school you know and then sometimes they get in language school after three or four whatever months and and then they have to like the work has to be their priority because they, they're both in minimum wage jobs so they both have to work so mm-hmm. you know it's like so many I don't know it, it's it just seems like something that wasn't well planned and the other suggestion I'd, I've made several times to people is, you know, like go to employers and and see if they'll hire two people, two, you know, with the same skills, one who can speak pretty good English, the other who doesn't, and they can mentor each other or he can mentor the other, you know, like there's a lot of things that could be done and... But anyway, these are just my rants and, you know, and it's all based on my own personal experience with, I'm going to say, hundreds of families that I've interacted with.
and continue to do so. And like even last night, a couple came to my door. Uh, they got their eviction notice on Wednesday. They have to be out tomorrow. And the three conditions where you've stayed at the hotel for a certain number of days, that's fine. But you, if you don't have a place to stay, it doesn't matter. You mm-hmm. both have been employed since May. Again, it doesn't matter if you don't have a place to stay. And then the third one says you have connected with the ANC housing team but have not shown active engagement in a housing search. I've been helping this family for three months, and they know that ANC are overwhelmed, and most people are looking themselves. So because, you know, like it seemed like they were saying, oh, you're not doing anything. Like I know for a fact from personal experience, they've gone to see many houses, and they say, but they didn't pick us. They didn't pick us, you know, if mm-hmm. they got a, a, an interview at all. And now they're, uh, they've been waiting. There's a, uh, someone buying a house in Mount Pearl, and they're going to rent the basement to them. So anyway, they went there this morning. They did agree to extend it. But, you know, the lady said, no, they had to call to make sure we were telling the truth. You know, I said, good Lord, it's just... Yeah. Uh, Elaine, I'm, I'm late for the news, but I appreciate making okay. time because as much as people would like for things to be perfect and idyllic, they're not. And we've got to. And there's a couple of reasons why we everyone moved very quickly and the yeah. preparation of the province. And I would suggest the country for the number of newcomers has not been great for anybody, including the newcomers. This no. is not about anti-immigration. This is about our people content. No. Will they stay? Will they be able to set down roots? Will they be, you know, contributing yeah. taxpayer uh, community members? Yeah. If you can't get a place to live, that's a pretty fundamental problem to begin with. Uh, Elaine, yeah. certainly appreciate the time. Off to the news we go. Okay. All right. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Let's take a break. For those of you in the queue, don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to PC member, uh, Conception Bay, South Paradise, maybe? Barry Patton? <laughs> I should know. Hi, Barry, around yeah. here. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. How about you? Not bad, not bad. Yeah, Patty, I just wanted to touch base, I guess, and reach out. School is reopening next week, of course, and an issue that uh, I spoke about a lot, I guess, in the previous, back in June, and I think the last time we spoke about it, actually, was uh, Frank Roberts and the issues that... Uh, come to light last year and for probably been the last two years has been issues that I've been dealing with up there and they come to a head last year with the you know the rodents and complaints over crowding and cafeteria and you know air quality and what have you and so there's a lot of outcry and of course when summer came as happens a lot of times people tend to get busy at other things which is all normal and so in advance of school opening it's an issue I never give up on actually I met with the minister Howell few weeks back actually and last last week I believe it was me and me and myself and her uh, toured school and had a good look at everything and I mean from all indications I mean school's clean uh, which it should be this time of year they've given a lot of attention to doing some extra work which I guess that was brought on a lot by the attention was given to it but you know it's uh, you know obvious the cafeteria is still small too you know not adequate and I mean the minister I think agreed with me on that uh, I got concerns with their quality of course and you know, and the, the officials are they're saying there's no moisture. You got a moisture to mold and what have you. And they're, 
you get false positives, you do air quality and sort of, the, you know, and it's not my expertise, but I know that that's a concern that a lot of parents have expressed. So, you know, in a nutshell, basically, there's been, you know, they've put a lot of attention into the school, uh, trying to get it, you know, uh, cleaned, cleaned up for one big problem. Because the school was not, it never had that deep dive. I mean, the cleaners do their cleaning, but it was a lot of stuff to be on the surface. And so you've addressed a lot of that, a lot of areas where rodents could get in, what have you. So, in theory, I mean, they've done a decent job. Well, Tom will tell when you get 650 students in there this fall and all the windows are closed and, you know, you're back into regular, a day, a regular day in any school. So, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm holding back till then. But, I mean, in the meantime, I mean, I've expressed to the minister the need that planning needs to start for a new replacement school uh, for Frank Roberts. I mean, and I know that's been new schools from across in other districts, and which is not my concern, obviously. But I think Frank Roberts is in, is, is in a situation where... I mean, the numbers are just not lying. I mean, the numbers are increasingly growing. It's a huge catchment area, and it's a town that's growing. I mean, we're we're the second largest municipality in the province outside the city, and uh, we're pushing like we're some we're we're heading towards thirty thousand people. And I mean, the school is not adequate. I mean, the school is my high school, and I went there, and we were you know it's not a whole lot of difference there now, Patty, when I went to high school there. So you know, there's a bit of cosmetics here and there, but the, you know, basically it's uh, it's past its best before date, and you know, but in the meantime, hopefully we'll see how the fall goes. I mean, we'll for reserve judgment, I guess, till the students get back in the classrooms and what have you. But uh, it was just something I wanted to, you know, bring attention to any listeners out there, especially parents of children in the school or going to the school. It's, uh, it's an issue that's near and dear to me and it's important to me, and the parents have made that clear. And, uh, yeah, I just wanted to basically offer them an update and, uh, you know, something that I'm keeping a close eye on. You know, whether we talk about rodents or what have you, and the whole general thoughts surrounding air quality monitoring, you know, and this is not just a COVID issue. This is an every, everything all-in issue. We should have a rotating uh, testing regime in place for the schools right across the province. It, it just makes sense. You know, we figured out that we needed to put in these... Uh, what's the uh, word, air purification units, uh, whether or not they're working the way they're intended, we don't know. Why? Because we haven't done the follow-up testing. So if we're talking about the common cold, whether respiratory illnesses or COVID or anything else, air quality is important. I wonder how many days missed or could be either directly or indirectly linked to poor air quality in school. Because, you know, it's got to be a factor of some variety. I mean, air quality sees people sick all the time. It kills millions of people worldwide. I'm not trying to be hyperbolic here, but we should be really testing the air quality. Even as far back as when Darren King was the Minister of Education, I interviewed him at Vanier one day about air quality. I don't think we've changed the whole process of monitoring it since then. And that's 17 or 18 years ago. Yeah, no, it's fair. It's fair point. I mean, and you, you know, you move on, and I, I totally agree. And I think I expressed my views to the minister, and uh, it was actually one of our senior officials with facilities management was there, and I, uh, I stressed my, you know, my opinion, my disagreement with the analysis of you don't do afraid of false positives, and you do broad air, uh, air quality testing. Sometimes you get misled and what have you. But I'd rather find it in error. If we do get misled, so be it. We wouldn't investigate, and there's nothing there. I'd rather do that than, than go to places where, you know, mold and uh, mold is existing, and we missed it because we never followed up with a test. I mean, you know, it's fine to say one comment was said to me, we wait till we get a leak, we remediate re the leak, then we do air quality testing. <laughs> like so, which kind of, to me, is like, okay. But, I mean, they need to realize when you done air quality testing, you done a lot of air quality testing back in around 2000. That's when a lot of our schools actually got shut down and schools had to be tore down because of mold and mildew. And ironically, Frank Roberts was one of those schools back in the day, 2004, 
that his children had to be relocated uh, to areas up there. The parish South Township had a lot of students. They had to go and do full remedi- remediation because of mold and mildew. And lo and behold, in 2009, it happened again. And this was, as you know, and they, they found it through air quality testing and, uh, you know, through complaints and what have you. So I couldn't agree more. And, and the rationale for not having air quality testing, to me, is just like, why wouldn't you? I mean, if you get a false positive or a false negative, so that happens in any testing. But at least you're going to minimize. You may never eliminate, but you can always minimize. And air quality is very important. We've got those children barred up in schools. A lot of them, their windows are shut most of the winter. And, I mean, six, 700 children in there. And that's when they need to go into air quality testing, Patty, when everyone are in the classrooms, active in the school. Now they have the windows open for two days, then go and test, do testing. Because apparently that's another thing to do, which which I can't make I can't make sense of myself. And it, uh, I'm sure no one else can either. But they actually open the windows for a couple of days to get school aired out. Then they do an air quality test. That, to me, makes, that defies all logic as well. So, you know. Sure. I mean, there should never be a heads up for what should be a pop-up inspection. You, you don't it. know it's coming. Then all of a sudden, someone arrives at the principal's office and says, we're here to do the air quality test. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely, Patty, and that's when you get the true tests, right? Any of these stage, in my opinion, they're like stage events. You're gonna, you're, 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 you're basically moving the pendulum to get the result you want, and I think it's, uh, it's, it's not adequate, and it's, it definitely needs change. I couldn't agree with you more. Appreciate the time, Barry. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Barry Patton's the member for CBS. All right, let's take a break. Uh, there's a caller there who wants to talk about the fact that a license got suspended for medical reasons. Now trying to get some uh, attention and appointment at the DMV, and Matthew Dixon schizophrenic to bike across Canada. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. With a bit of a ham-fisted introduction to our guest coming up on line number three that I gave before we went to the break. Matthew Dixon is the first person living with schizophrenia to bike across Canada and joins us on three. Good morning, Matthew. You're on the air. Hi, how are you? Doing okay. How about you? Not too bad. Where are you? I am near Shepherdville and I'm biking to Grand Falls, Windsor today. We, when we last spoke, you were still somewhere in the Maritimes, right? Yeah, 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 I was. I was in uh, uh, PEI, Charlottetown. Okay. So, uh, welcome back to the program. Uh, off the bat, maybe we'll just revisit some of the conversation we had last time, but for the benefit of those who maybe didn't hear our, our most recent uh, chat. So, what's the significance, in your mind, of being the first person with schizophrenia to bike across the country? Well, a lot of people may think, especially those recently diagnosed when the pain is uh, quite severe, uh, I want people to know that the pain can lessen and that uh, it will allow you to carry on for much longer than you thought. And that recovery is possible. There are people with schizophrenia who are symptom-free and uh, they may not be technically cured. For example, I'm still on a medication and I plan to keep taking my medication, but uh, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. And I biked across Canada when I was 20 and I wanted to do more fun stuff like that with my life, but at 22 I got schizophrenia. It took about 30 years to recover and now at 51 I'm doing what I want again. I, for some weird reason, I like biking across Canada. <laughs> so when you uh, talk about symptoms and the impact it would have on something like riding your bike, for example, amounts of time. What kind of symptoms are we talking about, Matthew? Yeah, so first off, I'm in the 25% of people with schizophrenia that don't hallucinate, so I never had any of those uh, problems. Um, I had low motivation. I just did not want to do anything. It was so difficult to move my body. Just holding a glass of water was overwhelming. Uh, like, how many choices can you do you have to move your fingers uh, in each different directions and different knuckles just to hold a glass of water? I was overwhelmed by that. Instead of 
most people just pick up a glass of water and don't even think what about what their hand is doing. It felt like I was just bombarded by visual and audio stimuli. Um, my thoughts were disorganized. But at the same at the same time, people will tell you with schizophrenia, another part of your brain ticks along just fine. And you can think about things uh, like, you know, do I want to go for a walk this morning? What do I want to eat? Do I want to go back to school? Should I take this job? Those, those thoughts do go through your head. But it's kind of like trying to... Uh, trying to speak into a tornado it's a a lot of your thoughts are just sort of drowned out by this uh torrent of just i don't know noise in your head and uh yeah Fair enough, and I'm glad you filled us in on that front. So along the way, I suppose there's lessons you learn about yourself, lessons you learn about what people in the uh, community know about or some of the myths associated with schizophrenia. First off, let's talk about maybe something that you've learned about yourself after this 30-year road and now the peddling across the country. Yeah, so I I mean, we've been talking about mental health now with COVID, and we've been, that's come out in the open. It was slowly building since uh, I think Ballot's talk uh, came out in 2010, uh, that program to get people talking about mental health. But schizophrenia and uh, some other mental illnesses are still not talked about as much. And for example, uh, I'm from St. Andrews, New Brunswick, a small town of 2,000 people, a very sleepy town. And even there, I was afraid, even till early this year, to utter the word schizophrenia out loud in public even in my own small town in case a stranger on the sidewalk or in a coffee shop heard me just simply utter the word and uh, this spring when I said you know I want to do this trip across Canada I, I, I finally for the first time uttered the word out loud in my coffee shop I looked around at the people there no one even noticed I said it as far as I could tell <laughs> so on this trip I've been having to utter the word schizophrenia out in public to people saying you know people see me with my bike and all my gear they ask where are you going and I say well I'm raising funds for the provincial schizophrenia societies and the national schizophrenia society across Canada and uh, no one bats an eye at that they say oh great cause good for you no one says you know they don't go grab their pitchforks and come running after me (laughs) it's uh it's a lot easier to talk about than you think and then you know sometimes I'll say you know I've got schizophrenia and I'm biking across Canada doing this fundraiser and people People, two responses I usually get for that are, I don't know much about it, or I know someone who has it. And again, no one comes after me with a pitchfork. It's, uh, it's. I know some people out there have misconceptions about schizophrenia and whatnot, but I believe that most people are fine talking about schizophrenia and that we don't have to hide behind closed doors as much as we do and I'm trying to show people that and I'm really enjoying this momentum I'm getting for me getting a lot more comfortable talking about schizophrenia with strangers in public and uh, I really want to run with that I've got some ideas for after the trip is over to continue that to help uh, I mean, it's it's the stats are people with schizophrenia are no more prone to violence than the rest of the general population. The BC Schizophrenia Society says people with untreated schizophrenia can be a bit more violent. I don't know what that stat is, um, but uh, generally, it's it's kind of like saying, well, don't talk about being left-handed because some people might think you're violent. Because true fact, some people who are left-handed are violent. But we can still talk about left-handedness in society. I would love if we could talk openly about schizophrenia in society. I know not everyone will ever be on board with that, but you know, maybe 90% of the population or 95 will be, and that would be a massive step compared to where we we've been for decades. 
Here, here. You know, I, I think some of these myths or misconceptions are maybe driven by, you know, something as silly and as fundamental as TV and movies and stuff because so many people in their mind's eye, they think schizophrenia, delusional, hallucinating, violent criminal who I have to cross the street to get away from when that's just simply not the case. We've had some, I think, helpful conversations with Susan Hyde at the Schizophrenia Association here in this province. Conversations like we're having with you today, your experience and how people are reacting to a conversation about schizophrenia, all very, very helpful because misconceptions become some people's truths without ever considering what might be actually the life of someone who has been diagnosed with schizophrenia, the different way that it manifests itself in different individuals. So I'm really glad, not only with what you're doing on your bike, but what you're doing here on this show. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, it's been lovely to be here in Newfoundland. I, I biked, like I said, I biked across Canada when I was 20. It was with a group called Tour to Canada. I think uh, they go across Canada each year. It's an organized trip. I think they just landed in Newfoundland the other day. Um, but uh, uh, So I've been here before once, but just very briefly. And I'm biking across the whole island this time. Last time we just went to uh, Argentia and then biked to St. John. So I came to Porto Basque. I've gone through the Table Mountains and um, Wreck House and the Codroy Valley, uh, the Marble Mountain area. And it's the scenery is just stunning. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. And where I'm from, St. Andrews, I feel very safe in my hometown. It's a very insulated, end of a peninsula kind of town, and I just feel very safe. There are big cities. I feel more just not at ease just because of people around and whatnot. And I know there's crime and whatnot in Newfoundland, but I really feel safe here on the whole island. People, a lot of people are just so friendly, and I just really feel like it's one big happy family, and I love being here. (laughs) Well, welcome back to the province, Matthew. Uh, Be safe. Enjoy the rest to your ride and when it's concluded you're more than welcome to rejoin us here on the program for a wrap-up thanks so much uh, people can follow me along at mindaid.ca m-i-n-d-a-i-d.ca i'm posting on facebook and youtube for the ride and uh, i my itinerary might change it's already changed in the last two days because uh, of wind and some rain but uh it's so it's hard to predict where i'll be each day for sure i can have a rough idea but i'm following the trans canada highway and i expect to be in st john's maybe september 6th or 7th somewhere in there uh, people are free to you know if you're, if you're passing by on the highway i've got a mindaid.ca website on the back of my safety vest feel free to honk or wave or stop or talk or uh email me email me or message me on facebook and maybe we can meet up and chat and uh yeah i encourage everyone here in newfoundland to donate to the schizophrenia society of newfoundland and labrador and yeah um Thanks for having me. (laughs) Happy to do it, Matthew. Uh, Once again, I look forward to uh, the wrap-up conversation. Safe travels, and thanks for making time for the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on the show. Okay, Matthew. All the best. Thanks, bye. There we go. Uh, Pretty cool. So second time biking across the country, this time with a much different purpose in mind. And, you know, I think the same can be, or similar conversations are had with different types of mental illness diagnosis. You know, unless you are intimately familiar with it, have been diagnosed yourself, have a family member with said diagnosis, we probably all have a slightly misguided or basic misunderstanding of what some of these diagnoses actually look like. And of course, it doesn't look the same in every single person diagnosed with any of the variety of mental illnesses that we talk about on the show. So good on Matthew for doing what he's doing. And it is reassuring to know that 
he thinks he's getting a different reaction and a different willingness for people to have a talk or a discussion or a conversation about schizophrenia because I think it, one, it is one of those labels that comes with some sort of demonic think or thought about what that person might be or who they are, what they're capable of. So good for Matthew to join us. And as you know, when it was once one in five Canadians dealing with a mental illness, now we're using one in four. So it just makes that conversation that much more important. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, you stay right there, Harley, to talk about the issue, trying to get an appointment with the DMV. And then Kathleen wants to talk about green hydrogen. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Harley. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Uh, I got a little problem here. I, I, I had eye surgery in the, on June the 9th. And uh, anyway, uh, actually, it was before that. Uh, I saw uh, an optometrist, and uh, he decided he was going to write the uh, DOT. And anyway, I, I lost my driver's license. Okay. So since since that, I uh, I, I had a, a vision referral form, and I went to the doctor with that. I had. Uh, a, I had the uh, the test done, where you got the beeper, the, you know, the uh, the little dots and the beepers and this time kind of stuff. Anyway, the doctor filled out the form and signed it, and it all looks good. So anyway, four weeks ago, I think it was August second, I'm not sure. Uh, I I called the uh, the DLT in St. John's, and they said they'll uh, they'll uh, look at it. I had the form. I sent him the form. I, I faxed it to him, but I didn't have my signature on it. I didn't realize there was a spot there for my signature. So anyway, I, I signed it, sent it back. Then they, they couldn't go by the, the, the first one they looked at. They had to wait for another meeting, which they did. And, uh, and you know, then the second meeting uh, took place. I still didn't get any answer. The third meeting, this is going on four weeks now. It just kept putting me off. You know, I had my license gone now for 10 months. And and according to the, the optom- ophthalmologist report, it, it looks pretty good that I, I should be able to get them, you know. But they just keep putting me off. And, you know, I'm 73 years old. I've been paying taxes all my life. I, I don't think it's fair that I should be treated like this or anybody should be treated like this. Fair enough. Uh, by chance, Harley, do you use email? Yes. Okay, because I give out this address frequently, and people seem to get great satisfaction with it. It goes directly to the registrar uh, themselves, as opposed to just mm-hmm. dealing with someone at the counter service, for instance. So I'm going to give you an address here, and I want you to let me know if it works out, because people have had you know, some good luck with this one. So do you have a pen and paper handy? Uh, yes, I get my voice to write it down there now. Okay. Okay. And this goes directly to the registrar. So it's R-E-G. R-E-G. I-S-T. I-S-T. R-A-R. R-A-R. M-R-D. M-R-D. Yep. Yep. Yeah. At. And. Gov. G-O-V. Mm-hmm. Dot N-L. Dot N-L. Dot C-A. Okay. Yep. Great. Anyway, try them. Hopefully, I get somewhere with it. And if you don't, you get back to me, and we'll see if we can come up with something else. 
Okay, appreciate it. Good luck, Carly. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, that, <laughs> I think they'll probably rule the day they gave me that address. I, I've given that a, a hundred times for sure. Uh, which one would you like me to take here now, David? Okay, let's go. Line number two, Tony, you're on the air. How are you this morning, Daddy? Not bad. You? All good, thanks. I just found about the shortages. I mean, uh, there's so many of them. Uh, nurses now, right now, we got over 1,300 that's casual. I mean, so all they have to do is just meet with them and hire the, the 700 that we need. And right now, I was on the corner where I was told that the, right now the new contract they got is only 2.5% raise for the full-timers and the casuals. If they go full-time, you can never go back casual. So, I mean, that's what? I guess that's the way they keep them. Yeah, that's what I was told. Yeah, that's not happening. The, I mean, the, the government put out a ton of incentives for people on the casual list to become permanent full-time, and very, very, very few did. So I don't know. You said they could just go and hire them. If they don't want to be hired and they don't want to take a permanent job, what's anyone supposed to do? Well, the union leader was on there a few weeks ago, and she was saying that there's more people quitting because of the, the working conditions, and there will be more quitting as long as, I mean, there's only in the last six months or so, there's reckon 120 nurses quit because, or went casual because they have, the working condition is terrible. I mean, they go in, they got to work 24, 36 hours. they got no life. I mean, there's nobody going to do that if they can work casual and just a few shifts whenever they, whenever they got a life, then they'll have a life besides. I mean, you know, like they're not, I mean, the nurses are here, but that's that's what they were saying. On, uh, that's what the union leader was saying. Plus they had their, well, the Open Federation building with their tops, basically their uniforms hung on the clothesline. And uh, I mean, it's just, uh, just like the doctors now, the new program to come in for doctors. You got to have, you got to be basically, it belongs to a clinic in order to get the raises. So what is great in here, I mean, you can get a clinic, but uh, around the bay, you're going to lose doctors because you're part of a clinic in order for it to work. So no, that's not it either. Yeah, that's not it either. And inside the world of nursing, I think we're losing more nurses to the private travel agencies than we are to the casual list because they, and that's a huge problem, I mean, making, let's say, even double the money. Uh, working alongside with your peers who are also registered nurses on the floor for North B or wherever, that's as big or bigger a problem than the casual list. Well, the reason they're leaving is because of the working conditions. And the doctors, I was told from a doctor that what it is right now, the, the government don't even know how it's going to work. It just don't start until next November. But at the same time, I know one doctor had to leave it around the bay and come in here to join the clinic because he had to drive all the way, probably about an hour in order to get it. And if you've got three doctors and one is off, then you've got to take on their patients as well. So they don't even know how it's going to work, and I don't think it's going to. And you're going to lose, like I said, a lot of doctors that are around the bay and uh, because they're nowhere near a clinic. So if they don't join, well, they don't fit in. So they don't get us. You only hire so doctors. Now. Uh, call, come on now, Tony. You only hire no, doctors. You only hire doctors to work somewhere. You don't hire doctors to just buy a house out in Virgil and just do nothing. I mean, you hire doctors to for purpose. Uh, emergency yes, rooms, hospitals, clinics, something. Every doctor's position comes with some sort of position. It's, it's not just oh, you're a doctor. You have to practice. Well, you, got, you have to do something. You can, yeah, you got to join another clinic. Like if say if there's three or two doctors there, you join a clinic. Then you still can have a private practice. But you got to be able to take on if somebody doctors off, then the other two doctors got to fill in with the other patients. And I mean, this, I mean, they're not, I mean, you take respiratory therapists. Did they hire the nine respiratory therapists that was graduating this year? I don't know. I mean, I never heard nothing about it. I mean, there was nine dilute, no, no other problems come in and talk to them and offer them all kinds of things, but they never had no, up to that time, they never had no offers whatsoever. So, I mean, you've got what they're doing is just. 
unreal. They're not even trying to keep people here. I mean, they're, uh, to me, the doctors left here a while back because they weren't getting anything. Uh, and basically, after four years, they signed the contract and they either take it or leave it. So, I mean, it's just the health care is gone. I mean, you, uh, if, I, if you told me, Patty, or I told you uh, a few years ago when livers got in that you're going to have thousands of people die because of not getting in the hospitals or waiting to get into a doctor, you say I was crazy. And so, uh, I wouldn't believe it myself. You're not allowed to do it. Well, where's I mean, that? That's what's going on. Where's that number coming from? Well, it was only almost two years ago that they gave over 2,700 up and dying then waiting to get in. So, I mean, now I'm sure it's going to add up another at least 1,000 people or so in the last two years. So, I mean, it's just just an ongoing. I mean, I've talked to people who are you know, people that was waiting to get in, and, and, and they were just every month they were canceled their surgeries. And, and the last one, he didn't know if he couldn't even strong enough to make, make it to the next month. I mean, this is what's going on. I mean, it's just unbelievable what's going on here in, in this province. And, I mean, the shame is we got them, but we're losing. We're losing them all the time. I mean, you had, a while back, you had eight uh, radiation therapists quitting nine months. I mean, because of the working condition, and they were getting $10 less an hour. But, I mean, we're just, they're getting the lowest pay, and they're and they're overworked. So, I mean, you've got to do something. The government has got to clean up the rack. And it comes out, I mean, if you, uh, back a while back, Fury says, we got, to, if you were over in another country, and you got to have an accident, you wouldn't be able to turn out, you wouldn't be able to, Hi, you wouldn't be able to come back to Canada and get treated. You have to get treated over there. So then, after a while, Tom Osborne came out and said we we're going to what? recruit now healthcare from seven different countries. So meanwhile, we got doctors here. In fact, I know one doctor here. Is, he was a specialist. He came here. He's on welfare. The other doctors came here, and he's here now. He's working on the front desk, getting a little better minimum wage. And this is what's going on here. But meanwhile, they're, they're coming out and. and basically telling everybody, oh, yeah, we're going to recruit doctors. So we got thousands of doctors here in, in Canada, and they can't get a job because that's all they have to do is give a, a, blue, says, a blue seal test, and if they pass it, sure not. I know where work. you got the blue seal business anyway. Uh, the problem out in rural is that doctors in demand, it's, the big question is whether or not they want to work in rural parts of the country. That's going well, to be the trick. And because well, if I'm a doctor and I, have, I can pick and choose exactly where I want to work in this country, I don't know how many of them the, at the top of their list would be small, rural, remote parts of anywhere in the country, not just in this province or in you know, smaller provinces like PEI, because they're in demand. They can pick and choose. They've got well, They hold all the cards. Uh, last thought, Tony, before I take my final break yes, of the week. Well, I, know this doctor, I, got this doctor, I know this doctor I was talking to. Anyway, he's, mm-hmm. he's leaving rural areas and coming in here to work with a clinic because he said he ordered in that, he'd have to drive an hour to get another clinic. And to get the rate, now he got some bonuses to offer them, but they got no, like there's raises. And the one that now they're going to basically get, instead of getting paid by the patients, now they're going to get a salary. Which is not bad as long as they get a raise, as long as they get good enough to keep them here. But even like I said, government don't even know what they're doing yet. So I mean, this, and the goes to show. But anyway, you have a good weekend, you Patty. You too, Tony. All the best. All right. Okay. Bye bye. Uh, last break of the morning and the week, Kathleen. You're next to talk about the old green hydrogen. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number one, Kathleen. You are on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Can you hear? <laughs> um, I'm just. Uh, phoning in about about uh, an, an article I read in the CBC uh, on Andrew Parsons' announcement on Wednesday mm-hmm. of the four of the four new green hydrogen energy projects that have been given the green light as far as crown land is concerned but there were some no. there were some numbers in there that just really had me 
going like, what? But one uh, thing, there's no green lights for anything quite yet. This is just next phase stuff. Yes. Yep. But but there wasn't, and and I I mean he obviously said this because they're they're uh, they're uh, reporting on it. But he claims that this is going to have an 11.7 billion in revenue for the province. Now I'm assuming that's over the life of these um, projects, which was quoted as between 35 and 40 years, but 11.7 billion in revenue for the province. And I'm going like, what, where is that coming from? Like that's 300. I mean, if we, if we divide that by 40, that's 300 million a year for the province. I'm just kind of wondering these are all private companies. I know, you know, you have some people who are hired on, and, and that was the other thing. He was talking about 11,000, almost 12,000 jobs. And given what we know about um, World Energy GH2 projects there, they were talking maybe 500 people in the construction phase, and that's you know, that's a, a short-term, those are short-term jobs. And then once the, the thing is operational, I don't know. I mean, they, they said it was less than that, you know, that there wouldn't be very many people employed after it was operational. So I'm not quite sure where Andrew Parsons is getting his figures from. I'm, I'm a bit skeptical. Um, well, World Energy GH2 uses a bigger number than 500 for construction. And so those jobs, that's what's referred to as peak full-time. So that's that will be for a very short amount of time inside the lifespan of 35 to 40 years. So that's all big numbers in the construction phase. And they reduced vastly after that for full-time operational jobs. But the $11.7 billion, I mean, it jumps off the page as a huge number, but you're right, it boils down to about $300 million-ish per year, which is not huge money. Where's your skepticism there? Because that is, you know, like, for instance, in the oil business, there's many years where we get over a billion dollars in revenue to the uh, provincial coffers. So where's the skepticism on the number, which is relatively small in the big scheme of things, of $300 million? I don't know. It, to me, it seems it 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 seems very very pie in the sky. Uh, I know for one thing that that renting out, leasing out crown land is usually done at a fairly low price, and we're practically giving the water away to for free to uh, World Energy GH two. Um. So I'm just kind of wondering what they're considering. I know there's there's other things like people paying taxes and whatever, but it just seems like a very high number, three hundred million a year to me. Well, okay, so pie in the sky, I think, is fair because what we don't know, and I don't think what the companies know, is just how successful they're going to be because they can have best-case scenario, put it forward as a business model to the lenders and to the province, but, of course, best-case scenario is achieved infrequently in the world of business. So if they get priced out by another fuel uh, to replace hydrogen or another provider closer to Germany, for instance, because that's where the MOU has been signed, then it may very well be an issue. Will appetite and thirst for hydrogen grow beyond the MOUs between whether it be rural energy, this province, and Stephenville with the Germans? 
probably. It looks like there's a thirst for the product, but that doesn't guarantee business uh, business success because if it looks like it's going to be successful for one, these won't be the last four companies that try to get in. So there is a pie-in-the-sky uh, attachment or association with this. Of course there is. Yeah. I just, I would really like to see, I would really like to see Mr. Parsons uh, or Minister Parsons put, you know, give us a little more information about that because uh, I'm not convinced as a taxpayer that we're going to get that much revenue for the province out of it. Uh, But I I really do, I I want to take this opportunity to say I really do think uh, Minister Davis should definitely take the opportunity to call a public hearing, call for public hearings on World Energy GH2 uh, project, the one that is in uh, Stephen Airport Port, because this would give us a, a, you know, this would give taxpayers an idea of, you know, a better idea of what we're talking about, because there is going to be quite a lot of destruction and there is going to be quite a lot of, um, you know, land use that won't be much good for anything else. It's so curious what that are we getting out of it. Sure, it's curious that people all all refer to World Energy GH two. The plan for the Buren Peninsula is way bigger in so far as how much Crown land will be used. But that that project on Port of Port that that just gets all the attention. Uh, Parsons gets these numbers from the proponents. So my thoughts on getting further information and understanding how we arrived at those numbers. My thought, and I'll get your reaction, is we're going to try to have a representative of all four of these companies to come on and talk about job creation, to talk about where they've got their forecasted revenue and what that looks like and how much they're going to be charging or what the end customer is willing to pay as as per their current business due diligence. So I don't think we can get those numbers from the minister, to be honest with you. I think we need it from the proponents. So whether it be Mr. Risley, someone representing the Exploits Valley Renewable Energy Crew, ABO, Everwind, that's what we're going to try to do there. I think that's a better play. What do you think? I, I think so. Well, I agree with you. Sure. I mean, if they're the ones putting forward the... Uh you know, the numbers, then definitely they would be the ones to explain how the province is going to get $11.7 billion yep. out of it. Right? Yep. Even even if everything goes really well. <laughs> but but it leads me to a question that I, I need to ask you. Is uh, you, you were mentioning last week when I called in about uh, World Energy GH2 um, that you might have them on this week. And like most women, I even though I'm retired, I'm still working. <laughs> so even though I'd love to hear your 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 show every day, I, I don't get a chance. So did you have them on this week? No, and I think they were unwilling to come on until the announcement was made two days ago by the minister. But we will be actively trying to get a lead representative on the business side in particular from all four. Because I think that's where we can glean the most information, not from the minister, with all due respect, because he's only reading off what was proposed by the different companies. So we'll try to get Mr. Risley. We'll try to get one from each of these uh, groups on the show, including Pattern Energy, which is still part of the conversation. They're not involved in this round because they weren't applying for Crown Land for Phase 1. So that's it. Let me rejig the number to five. We'll see if we can get all five on in the very near future. It might mean an awful lot of hydrogen talk to me, but I think it's information important to the listener. Yes, I think it's really, really important. Yeah. Great. Sounds good. Appreciate the time, Kathleen. Have a nice long weekend. And same to you. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.
All right, uh, between myself and David, we will make that one of the absolute priorities. So in that hopper, we're talking about uh, Jennifer Williams, the CEO over at Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, and we'll try to get someone, a business voice rep, from all four of the companies that have been told they're moving forward to the next phase, and hopefully that can all be satisfied. Hopefully in the next week. I mean, it's never easy to try to organize time with some of these people, but we'll try. We'll do the best we can. All right. Good show today and all week. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, all of the callers, listeners, emailers, and tweeters. You're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again on Tuesday morning, right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. We'll talk on Tuesday. Bye-bye.